0: To get started, visit plushcare.com/weightloss. That's plushcare.com/weightloss.
1: This is the other side of midnight with Frank Morano.
2: They're running a strange program, y'all.
1: Now here's Frank Morano.
3: There are two very important, very difficult decisions that I make each and every day. Uh, They are decisions that I wrestle with. They're decisions that I spend a lot of time thinking about. They are decisions that affect the entire course of my day. No exaggeration. And this may sound silly to you, but these are the two decisions. One When I am looking after my son in the afternoon while my wife is working, he'll take an afternoon nap. Maybe around 3.30, maybe around 2.30, sometime in the afternoon, he'll take a nap for 45 minutes. So the first question, the, the first big decision that I have to make in my day usually is, do I spend the 45 minutes that he's napping, do I take a nap myself, so that I'm well-rested and have energy to get through the rest of my day? Or do I go ahead and get some work done? And that's always... And it varies. It always does vary. Now, the second question is always this. What should be the first thing that I talk about on the radio each and every day? And I agonize over this. Sometimes... It's a decision that I make the first time, as soon as I wake up in the morning. Sometimes it's a decision, this is usually the case, after I go through the papers and go through my emails and go through my own notes of what I want to bring up and see what's going to really hook people. Sometimes it's a decision that I make seconds before we start the show. And I came to a a conclusion about the latter decision about an hour ago. But it's very important. I want to give a disclaimer here. If you are a radio consultant, please stop listening. If you are involved in the management or ownership of this radio station, please stop listening. If you are uh, somebody that is expecting a hard-nosed, really hard-hitting news of the day topic, come back in 10 minutes. because. An interesting thing happened to me yesterday. I make notes on my computer, but I also make notes in a notebook, right? And I go back and forth between the two. And I'll I'll save you the details of my whole process. But since I did my taxes a few months ago, I got this pen from my accountant. And it's a promotional pen. He got a very good deal with it. I'm not exactly sure what type of pen it is. I think it's a kind of a, a gel pen. It's sort of a half of a um, a regular pen, but also ha- kind of a marker. That's why I think it's a gel pen. But I thought to myself, this pen is just great. I'm afraid to take it with me to work because I don't want to lose it or have it be pilfered. So I have this pen spot for it on my desk at home. So... I kept it there because I can't wait to use it again tomorrow. And I was driving here. I said, boy, did I make a mistake not taking that pen with me? Did I make a mistake and not have that pen to write with for the whole rest of the day? I have a marker with me, a Sharpie, which I, I kind of do like to write with. I feel like uh, Donald Trump or Curtis leewa, But um, I can't help but think, like Robert the Robert Frost poem, The Road Not Taken, or the road not traveled, I can't help but think of the pen not written with. And I know that pen is home waiting for me, but I have to think maybe I should get a few more of those. So what I did about three minutes ago is I wrote to my accountant, I said, where did you order those pens? Because I'm going to order a whole bunch of those pens. And then I'm going to give them away to folks. Uh, I'm going to the same type of pen, only instead of emblazoned with Goldenthal, Suss, and Egan, whatever my accountant's firm is, it's going to be emblazoned with The Other Side of Midnight, Frank Morano. And maybe we'll give them away to listeners and things of that nature. But here's what it got me thinking a pen is something that many of us use every single day, sometimes many times a day. What is the best pen you've ever used? Call and tell me. Because 800-848-9222, that's 800-848-9222, because you think about it, it, using a pen is almost like eating. How many times do you eat? Two, Twice a day, three times a day, sometimes four or five times a day? And how many meals throughout the course of your life do you really remember? The same is true of a pen. You use pens all the time, but how many really leave an impression with you? So I decided, you know, even though that my finances are kind of stretched pretty thin right now with the baby and commuting and getting ready to pay for Kathy Hochul's congestion pricing for the privilege of coming to work every day, I day, I'm going to buy a whole bunch of great pens because life is too short to be using subpar pens. And I thought to myself, as I'm driving here, should I really not have that pen with me at work? So I'm going to order another pen like that at work. And, again, I think it's a gel pen. There's a lot of different types of pens out there, and a lot of people have different preferences with pens. I think um, Jerry Seinfeld, you know, he did that bit on the television show Seinfeld about the astronaut pen. And I got one of those, and it was it was good for what it was, uh, the astronaut pen. If you're not familiar with uh, astronomy or a, a space exploration or aeronautics or the TV show Seinfeld, it basically is a pen that writes upside down. So you can write in bed with it, and it's neat. It keeps working, and you can write upside down with it. After he did that episode, they sent him a whole bunch of those pens. He also wrote every episode of Seinfeld, I believe, on a yellow legal pad with a very specific blue type of Bic pen. And I think it was a pen that they discontinued, but they sent Jerry a whole bunch of them before they did away with them. I was gifted for my 21st birthday by my friend King Henry. The, I was gifted a Mont Blanc pen that I still have, which is a great pen. And I try not to use it too much because I don't want something to happen to it. And But I've used it many times to write a check. It's It's great but it's i feel like i have to exert a little too much pressure to use that pen so the pen that my accountant gave me and i think he only paid like 50 cents maybe 75 cents for this pen it's not a super expensive pen this pen to me is the perfect balance between ease of writing not necessarily having to apply that much pressure the ink just flows out of it um it doesn't smudge and it's a pleasure to use. And I found myself turning more to my notebook just so I can use that pen instead of making notes in my computer. See, pens are funny things because I've been gifted fountain pens a couple of times. Uh, my father and stepmother gave me one. And then I interviewed a radio guest one time. And I don't know. He wanted to talk about whatever issue in the news I was interviewing him about. And I noticed he had a fountain pen. And I complimented me on it. He gave me one of those fountain pens. The same thing happened with those fountain pens. That happened with uh, Macaulay Culkin's character in Home Alone 2. Remember when Macaulay Culkin's character—maybe he was even the first Home Alone—Macaulay Culkin's character, Kevin McAllister, was gifted those really cool roller blades, and he was afraid to use them uh, because he didn't want—he didn't want to scuff them and things like that. And ultimately, he outgrew them. The same thing has happened with me that those fountain pens. I'm always afraid to lose them that I um, I don't use them. And it's a shame, and I should use them more, but I always feel like they're wasted. This kind of cheap pen from my accountant... It's great. So there's a lot of different types of pens out there. You got ballpoint pens, you got fountain pens, rollerball pens, gel pens, disposable stick pens, click pens, stylus pens, felt pens, novelty pens, refillable ink pens, multi ink pens, highlighter pens, lefty pens, antimicrobial pens, Fisher Space pens, Reed pens, dip pens, ink brush pens, calligraphy pens, technical pens, ruling pens, smart pens, check safe pens, surgical pens, and even quills. So in your life. What is the finest pen you've ever used? Eight hundred eight four eight nine two two two. 848 As a corollary to that, what pen do you use on a regular basis that you would recommend? Because maybe you have a really great fountain pen or a really great Mont Blanc pen that you'll only use for special occasions. You won't carry it with you for some of the same reasons I stated. If that's the case, what pen would you recommend to a normal average Joe like me that they could take with them because it's funny whenever I find myself in a drugstore and I think my wife and I are going to be in a drugstore today to uh, get our flu shots. And uh, whenever I find myself in a drugstore, I wander over to the the supply and stationery section and I end up buying a couple of pens. Even though these pens are like books, I've, I have more pens than I could ever use. 800-848-9222. Tommy is in Brooklyn. Hello, Tommy. And Frank,
2: uh, Pilot gel pens—they're cheap, they're great, but you gotta get the bulb, bulb line, not the fine, the bulb line.
3: So I have used the Pilot gel pens. I have several of them. Um, I think I've only used the fine. Now you use the bulb? Yeah, bulb,
2: Because I do a lot of paperwork for my job, and they—they they work great. Work great. All right. It's, like I, a, it's I, almost I'm,
3: like a marker. I, see, I, I think that's similar to what I have. Okay, so Pilot Gel Pens, the ball, the ball pens, Pilot Ball, no, the bold, bold, bold line, bold bulb bulb line, bulb, yeah, not the fine, not the medium bold, Pilot Bulb Gel Pens. I'm putting it on the list. Thank you, Tommy. Eight hundred eight four eight ninety two twenty two. Eight hundred eight four eight nine two two two. John is in Freehold. Hello, John. Hey, what's up, Frank? So this pen is gonna blow your mind. You can sign checks. You can draw
4: amazing pictures with. Got a really good feel. It's called um, uh, it's by Artists Loft. Artists Loft. It's an
3: illustration pen. Give it. Give uh, me the name again, once, with John. Artists Loft. Artists Loft illustration pen.
5: Yeah. And, and what's so great about it? It's like a. The tip isn't
6: hard, and it's not soft either. It's got, like, a comfortable feel when you're writing.
4: But you can spend all day drawing with this, making illustrations. You can,
5: you know,
2: write letters, sign checks. Everything looks good. It's not that bold, but it's thicker than a regular pen. It's It's got a great look to it.
3: I'm looking at the pen, uh, and I see the outside, but I can't see the... Sort of the business end of it, where the writing part of it comes down. And it looks like it doesn't look super expensive. It looks like you can get four of them or five of them for $25 online. But um, all right, I'll, I'll put this on the list. So it's uh, an artist's loft illustration pen. Size 0.8. Size 0.8. Okay. Thank you, John. 800 848 9222. Robin Port Jervis, pen recommendation, please.
2: Yes, I use a retractable, it's a cheap pen made by Bic. It's called the Velocity uh, Bold. It's a 1.6 ball. It's the biggest ballpoint you can get, I believe. They're very affordable, real cheap, actually. You know, they're just retractable Bic pens. And uh, I, use, I write a lot. I have to fill out a lot of forms. But uh, you were talking about ease of writing and these things just go across the paper like there's nothing to it. You know I like I this. Always...
3: I like this one. It's not expensive. Uh, they're about a dollar each it looks like. It's um it, it what I like on the label and I don't know if this is accurate but it based on your description it sounds like it might be. It's Easy Glide Feel the Smoothness. You know, that is really what I'm looking for in a pen. I'm looking for a smoothness. I'm looking for the pen to kind of just be an extension of my hand and my arm.
2: Well, you would really like those. I I use them all the time. And I always said I would recommend them to someone who, say, writes a book and has to uh, autograph books or autograph anything. They're just because they're so easy to write with.
3: So. Okay, well, I'm uh, going to get my this recommendation. too. All right, um big velocity retractable big velocity with the 1.6. Oh, oh. 1.6. Okay, I was looking at the 1 1.0 uh retractable no, pen.
2: 1.6 even bigger. It's like the biggest ballpoint you can get. Okay. Uh and okay. it's not crazy big. But it, it does write thick now. You couldn't fill out anything really tight or small with it. But uh, just for all-in-all all writing or jotting stuff down, they work great. Uh,
3: you know, this does look good. This does look good. Thank you, Rob. Eight hundred eight four eight nine two two two. Harry in Pennsylvania. Hello, Harry.
7: Oh, I just want to recommend a great pen. I'm a security officer, and I do a lot of writing. It's called a Sharpie s Pen stylo.
3: Sharpie um F gel or S gel? S is in Sam or F is in Frank? S as in Sam. S is in Sam, gel pen, and then what is the last word?
7: Silo. S T Y L O.
3: S T Y L O. Okay, let's take a look at this. Uh okay, what's so great about this this Sharpie S gel uh this Sharpie S gel pen?
2: Like
7: I said, I do a lot of writing and it's like the best pen I ever had. I was shocked. At how great it is. That's the only pen I'll use now.
3: Really? Okay. Sharpie uh, S Gel Pen sty- uh, Stylo. This is uh, interesting. Thank you. All right. So, so far, we have the Pilot Bulb Gel Pen. Uh, we have the Artist sloff Illustration Pen, the Bic Velocity Retractable Pen, and the Sharpie S Gel Pen Stylo. Alex on Staten Island. Hello Alex. Hi there. I have to secondary I'm a secondary of the the
8: of velocity uh 1.6 ballpoint pen by Bic. It I
3: use it at work and it's it's perfect. It's like it's like a ballpoint but it's a little bit thicker the tip and it really shows up nice. Yeah, I'm going to order some. I, that other guy convinced me. Yeah, okay. Thank you. Thank you Alex. James in New Jersey.
7: Hey, how you doing Frank? Nice to talk to you. Likewise. Um, Wanted to recommend, since you mentioned smoothness of a pen, uh, my favorite is a cross pen. Uh, Kind of pricey, but writes very, very smooth. Um, I actually have an antique one, which uh, the exterior is sterling silver, but uh, really writes very smooth. It uh, never runs out of ink, it seems.
3: So what, what kind of—I know you said it's a cross pen, but what kind of a cross pen? Is it a ballpoint? Is it a rollerball pen? What what, ex- what is it exactly that you like, the one? Uh,
7: it is sort of like a roller point because the base um, is very thick where the, the ink collects, and it just writes very smooth. Um, the the base, you sort of like, you know, twist the, the pen— uh, to open it, to, to start writing. And the, the, the ballpoint itself, the the point is very thick.
3: Cross. uh, Well, uh, you know, I'm looking at this. It doesn't look crazy expensive. It looks like between looks about 15 to $20. Does that sound right? Yeah, that sounds right for, for most of the cross ones that are out now. And um, I just find that
7: they, they're a very smooth writing pen and um, I use it all the time. Thank you. Thank
3: you, James. All right. We got that on the list. By the way, some of you might actually be interested in the uh, news of the day. Let me tell you what's coming up. Coming up in about five minutes, we're going to talk with uh, John Stossel. John Stossel, of course, a legendary broadcast journalist. He was on ABC's 2020 for many years, won 19 Emmys, was on Channel 2 in New York for a long time, was a local reporter, national reporter, was on Fox Business and was doing very well on Fox Business and then chose to leave it and we'll find out why, but really I want to talk to him about his column in Saturday's New York Post regarding social media censorship because I am of two minds with social media censorship. On the one hand, I kind of don't think anything should be censored. On the other hand, I recognize that things have to be censored. And how do you make those decisions? And that's something that I've wrestled with, As the administrator of a tiny little Facebook group, by the way, if you want to join that Facebook group, you could do so at Murano Radio Fans and Haters. And I can't tell you how much time I spend on this tiny little Facebook group. Every day someone emails me uh, or Facebook messages me and says something to the effect of, hey, you know, you should really take that post down. You should really take that comment down. Or they'll say, I can't believe you took that comment down. And that's just with 3,000 people. Now, can you imagine doing that with 30,000 people? How about 300,000 people? How about 3 million people? How about um, 30 million or 300 million? And yet those are the decisions that the big tech companies have to make. So... In a lot of ways, being the moderator of this Facebook group has caused me to have a new appreciation for how difficult it is to make these decisions. So we'll talk with John Stossel about that and a bunch of other things in just a minute. Mark is in our nation's capital of Washington, D.C. Hello, Mark.
9: Yeah, um, this may sound strange, but when I was in college, this is many decades ago, the best pen I ever had was the old Bic stick with the, the total uh, brass Um, point to it, it was so good, this one pen, that I kept taking the refill out of new pens, unscrewing them, Mm. and shoving them back into this, the original brass, it was the total brass, it wasn't just a little nip, the little, little tip, it was the one that they had in the commercials, where they would load it in a gun and shoot it through a one-inch pine uh, board, and that was still right. Do they still make those? No, they don't, in fact, I... I so coveted these things that in an old um, uh, lozenge case, I had a couple of these pens with the uh, the original brassing, and I took them all off as I refilled them. So I had these things that I could refill. But the problem was, uh, you couldn't find any more of those, and and I would collect. You know, this is an odd thing, to, I guess, to make tracks or keep keep score um, throughout the uh, the academics. I had. A group of used, um, for some reason I kept the shafts of them uh, that were rubber banded together, and and I must have gone through maybe you know 35 pens or so, huge number. No. Now I have speaking about Mont Blanc, I was gifted one for my birthday many years ago, and this thing is like writing with a tree trunk. And although the, the the ink flows very well, it's got a really big nub. Yes. So the guy, so you're, the guy that was talking about you know signing things, it's excellent for signing things, but you can't do anything else with it.
3: No, you're you're right. I mean, I don't want to say you couldn't do anything with, else with it, but your description of writing with a tree trunk—that's yep. an apt description, and I think that's the that's a much better way of conveying what I was trying to convey, which is you have to put too much effort in. Into yep. using it, I want a pen that's easy to use, that doesn't I've, smudge.
9: I've gone to that that you know, that alternative too, and I have to say, ironically, I did use the Bic Vel um, uh, Velocity. I you know I bought them in a, in a, they came in a, uh, from Staples like a pack of five, but I didn't know that, and I, I kept buying other pens and other pens and multiple packs to find something that really, really moved and flowed easily. And sadly, I'm in a condition now where I I can't do that. But I'll use I'll try any pen that flows well and doesn't blob, and is disposable.
3: <laughs> disposable. Okay. Well, thank you, Mark. I'm sorry they don't make that pen anymore. I am gonna uh, in all seriousness. I'm gonna order a whole bunch of these pens. So we got the Pilot Bulb Gel Pen, Artist Loft Illustration Pen, Vic Velocity Retractable Pen, 1.6 only, the Sharpie S Gel Pen Stylo, the Cross Rollerball Pen. I'm going to, I am, look, I'm going to spend $100 on pens today. I've lost money doing this show tonight. 800 848 9222. Uh, Loretta is in New Rochelle. I believe Loretta is the person who never remembers who I am and always is telling us about some of the difficult times that she has hopefully uh a pen has helped her through some of those difficult times no. hello loretta
6: i don't i think that might be another loretta i know there's a loretta that's from brooklyn that, ah yes that, that
10: is her.
3: that calls yes. a lot yes that's not you you know who i am
6: oh yeah i know
3: who you are who I am i you almost every night not to sound like admiral stockdale but who am i frank oh, all right well you, <laughs> wonderful if we if we were playing the thousand dollar minute uh you'd be one step closer to the thousand.
6: <laughs> You a few times I over the last you, year or so. I remember. But you. there's another Loretta in, in uh, Brooklyn. Yes, but that's not me.
3: Well, you're well, my you're my Loretta.
6: Yeah. <laughs> well, your topic really made me laugh because I don't feel so odd anymore because I got so attached to a pen that I used for years and they I can't really re- make a recommendation because they don't make it anymore. But um, it was it was made by A company called Sanford. It was called the Expresso Pen, Mm -hmm. extra fine point, and it was a felt tip. And I used that pen for probably like 20 years. It was like my pen. And if I happen to, you know, leave it somewhere, and one of my friends picked it up, they're like, "Oh, I love this pen. Where'd you get it?" So like, so many people loved it, but they stopped making it. Why did they stop making it? I don't know. And you know what? For a, for a couple of years after they stopped making it, was, it wasn't an expensive pen. You could buy it, like, in a drugstore or a stationery store, you know, and it hanging up on the wall. You know, it wasn't expensive. But um, after they – I couldn't find it anymore. I did find it on eBay. Right. I'm just years. looking on
3: now. It's $25 on eBay for a pack of uh, – a pack of uh, yeah. I don't know, 12
6: but you know what? There's no more. I, I used to love the black color. That was. But you know what? I, I ordered them on eBay for a few years after they were discontinued, and I paid like a lot of money for them. That's how much I love these pens. But then what happened is, uh, after a while, the boxes that I start that I started getting from eBay, the ink was all dried up.
3: Ah, uh, so, I see. Well, I guess that happens with the older pens. Yeah, I'm sorry so for like, you um, that they stopped. did um,
6: work out.
3: I'm sorry for you that they stopped making them. But, um oh,
6: they were the best pens, and uh, why they stopped, I don't know, because anyone that used them, loved them. Yeah. But um, I see them on eBay now, but they're like they're odd colors, and they're probably dried up, so don't so go buy them on eBay until none of your listeners should buy them, well, because they're probably
3: dried up. That's good advice. Thank you, Loretta. 800 848 I think this is, I got an SMS text message here, I believe, from Donna from Huntington. She sent me an article... From the New York Times ranking the six best pens that all their experts tried. Here are some of the ones they mentioned. The Uniball Jetstream RT is the best everyday ballpoint pen. Um, all right, maybe I'll try it. They also ranked the uh, Pilot Dr. Grip Center of Gravity, an ergonomic ballpoint. They uh, For a rollerball pen, the Pilot Precise V5 RT for writing with a more saturated, darker line than you can get from a lower-priced ballpoint, they also had two gel pen picks, uh, which were uh, popular: the Pentel Energel RTX and the Univox Signo RT1. Uh, all right, I'm, I may try some of these as well. Johnny in Garden City, um, really quick. Go ahead. it quick. This is like the like like you just said, the Pilot Precise V5 roller pen, but
4: extra fine. And this actually makes you write better, much much neater. It's a great great pen. You can get a Staples Pilot Precise V5 rollerball pen, extra fine point. That's the key right
3: there. All right, like, well, it's twenty two dollars though. Is it worth it? Yeah, it's like five. It's a five pack though. Oh okay. All right. I will try this yeah. then. Thank you, Johnny. John Stossel joins us straight ahead.
1: The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano.
3: Every once in a while, I read a column which causes me to not only reread it because I wanted to make sure I heard it accurately, but read it a second time because I wanted to make sure that uh, when I commit intellectual plagiarism, I'm quoting it accurately. That was the case in a column I read in the New York Post this past weekend on the subject of social media censorship and Twitter, uh, Twitter—why it was once so great, why it was uh, such a disappointment to see it go in another direction, and why there may be hope for the future. Its author is veteran broadcast journalist, author, libertarian advocate, and the founder of the Center for Independent Thought—the one and only John Stossel. John, it's great to talk with you again. Thanks for joining me.
4: You too, Frank. And my main these days is Stossel TV. We release a new video every Tuesday. I
3: I, I was just going to ask you about that. And uh, I watch a lot of the videos, and folks can check everything out at uh, johnstossel.com or Stossel TV on YouTube. In our last conversation, we talked a little bit about why you left the world of big media, and I don't think anybody was better known than you on both a national and a local level, uh, for the independent route, YouTube, Stossel TV. you had won 19 Emmys. You had uh, the highest rated show on Fox Business. You were a mainstay on uh, ABC News with 2020. You were a star local reporter with Channel 2, a star local reporter going all the way back to your days in Oregon. Why, uh, given your name recognition, your reputation, would you give all that up to kind of go about things on your own with Stossel TV?
4: Two reasons. One, that Fox is all about live talk show stuff. And my special skill is taking complicated ideas and editing and debating different people and cutting a piece like I did in 2020. And I couldn't do that. Really a Fox, except for your occasional specials, but also because my son convinced me correctly as it turned out that I don't need a network anymore I have a million Twitter followers and Facebook followers and I can reach about the same number of people through social media.
3: You're sort of a one-man network in terms of the amount of uh, followers that you've been able to build on social media. And one of the things that used to be so great about Twitter is that if I was interested in John Stossel or anybody else that might tweet something, be it text or video, that I was interested in, in seeing or hearing, I'd be able to follow that person, and then their tweets would come up in my Twitter feed. It's one of the many things that made Twitter interesting. It's sort of a a way to build your own newspaper. What happened to Twitter to cause it to be so, uh, to put it politely, frustrating to people like me that want to curate their own newsfeed?
4: They don't send you everything that the people you follow tweet. They send you, I I find it's maybe 5 or 10% of what, I tweet. So you sign up. There's only a 5% chance you'll get the tweet. It's actually not true. They do send the tweet, but they bury it way at the bottom of your feed. So almost no one will get there. And why they do that? Is it political bias? I don't know. And I certainly can't prove that. It's also true that if you got everything, here, the people you follow put out or and all your Facebook friends stuff you wouldn't like it because it turns out our friends post a lot of garbage so some editing apparently is useful uh, for the social media companies but I think Twitter it's often been biased and you see it in, in what they censor
3: I think speaking of the New York Post, I don't think there's a better example than than the Hunter Biden New York Post story during the 2020 election where they wouldn't even let the editor of the New York Post tweet out that story. It's funny. A couple of years ago, we first heard the term shadow ban. And the thing about being banned on Twitter, as Donald Trump is, as Kanye West is, as Roger Stone is, is at least, you know, you're banned from Twitter Uh, Shadow banning, as I understand it, 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 they just stop your tweets from reaching people, and they don't have to tell you if you're shadow banned. Do you think this is a a reflection of a desire for them wanting sponsored tweets, or is this, as you alluded to, a a possible indication of a political bias?
4: I think it's political bias because they could still put out sponsored tweets. But it's, it's impossible to prove. We can't know what they're doing unless a whistleblower comes forward.
3: It was also a frustrating endeavor for Elon Musk, even after he announced that he was buying Twitter for uh, in the neighborhood of forty four billion dollars. He said that he didn't feel that Twitter was being forthcoming with him about how much of the how much how many of the users were bots and things of that nature. Now it looks like Elon Musk is going to go forward with the purchase of uh, of Twitter. It sounds like you're pretty optimistic about Twitter in a Musk era.
4: Perhaps I'm influenced by the fact that my, the number of my followers has been going steadily up a few hundred people every day. And I'd had a million. It gradually dropped to just below a million. And then it would just stayed the same for months. And now amidst this Twitter stuff, it's gone back over a million again. And it keeps growing. There are new people who keep appearing. But why that happened,
3: I don't know. So give me your hope for the the Musk era in uh, in Twitter land. If Elon Musk moves more towards a freedom of speech direction, what would you like to see him do with the understanding that there are practical concerns that maybe you can't see uh, in real time the tweets of all 5,000 folks that you might be following?
4: And he's still going to have to have some content moderation, apparently, because no moderation becomes a cesspool because the people who believe in one conspiracy theory tend to believe in lots of them. And 15-year-old kids who get off irritating people with nasty posts would just do this all the time. So, I mean, even Parlour Rumble, Odyssey, and tr- Trump's network find they have to have some content moderation. I just hope that the he's going to hire some people who won't let these leftist woke 30 year olds who giggle and take pride in censoring people like me get away with it now how will he find out i assume through the complaints and he'll will complain and and you know why was this removed why isn't this being sent and Eventually, somebody will check it out, and if he finds it's some kid who just censoring posts he doesn't like, they'll do something about it. Another thing I notice is that they'll show me responses to my tweets, and I like reading them. And you go down the list, and you know, more tweets, you click, and I can see more tweets. And then you get to uh, click here if you want to see more tweets, including some with offensive content. So I eagerly tweet, click that, because I'm curious. And yeah. most of the time, there's no offensive content. Most of the time, it's, love your stuff, Sassel. It's complimentary comments. <laughs> so I don't know what they're doing there.
3: It, it's very, it's uh, very strange. Uh, I, I started tweeting things that uh, sort of questioned the party line on Ukraine and the United States funding Ukraine all of a sudden, I went from having my tweets retweeted and liked by dozens of people to retweeted and liked by almost no one. Even yesterday, I had Andrew Yang on who retweeted me. He's got 1.8 million followers. Shockingly, even once he retweeted me, not a lot of people seem to see that tweet. So uh, the, the mystery of this whole thing and how Twitter makes the sausage is uh, as frustrating as the fact uh, that, that it happens. But uh, uh, with people are just tuning in, we're talking with John Stossel. You could see some of the terrific videos that he does at johnstossel.com or just type stossel tv on youtube there are as you mentioned some concerns about about hate speech and if you were in charge of uh, a social media network let's say there was stossel truth social or something along those lines how do you how do you navigate and how do you walk that line between a desire for free expression and a desire for not wanting folks to just make a a social media platform uh, a harbinger of racist thoughts or anti-Semitic thoughts or harmful thoughts?
4: Unfortunately, I see no way of doing it other than to have content moderators. And it's a horrible job because they just read vicious stuff and hate all day and have them make a judgment about this person isn't contributing to the debate. He's just spewing hate and obvious lies. Um, the problem was that they'd been doing it for talk that they just didn't like. Like somebody writes an article saying, you know, masks don't work so well. They may do more harm than good. And they were killing stuff like that. And that's outrageous.
3: Kanye West was suspended from both uh, Twitter and Instagram after some comments that he made, which uh, a lot of folks believe were anti-Semitic. He's now announced that he's going to be buying the social media network uh, Parler, which doesn't have anywhere near the – audience that a, a twitter does how do you think that's going to work out do you think the uh, the ownership of a big star like kanye west will cause more mainstream people to migrate towards parlor or do you think this will largely remain a, a social media network that's been relegated to the fringes
4: fringes i think and by the way parlor just oops mistakenly released the emails of uh hundreds of us who um, get the most response uh, to the public, uh, just infuriating. Um, I don't love these conservative sites because I don't want to just talk to conservatives. Mm -hmm. I want to talk to everybody. And there's a lot of garbage on these conservative sites too. There's utter vaccine denial and lots of conspiracy theories and Donald Trump utter worship, which annoys me because I say he's a selfish bully. I wish he'd go away.
3: Well, the thing that used to be so great about Twitter and even Facebook back in the day is that you could interact and learn from people that you might have differing views from. And it seems uh, like on Truth Social and Parler and Rumble, there's not as much of an opportunity to uh, interact with folks that may may disagree with you. Whenever I bring up the term uh, free speech as it relates to social media, there's always a whole bunch of folks that point out, well, look these are private companies Uh, they have every right to determine the rules of their platform and who should be on that platform there's been no greater defender of property rights over the course of the last uh, four or five decades than you Uh, what do you make of that philosophy that uh, these are private companies and they should be able to kick whoever they want off their platform
4: these are private companies and they should be able to kick anybody (laughs) off their platform it's true i just think if important that we call them out on it and get public pressure to get them to do the right thing but they certainly have the right and conservatives proposals for legislation that's a bad idea because if we get politicians making these decisions then government controls even more and that's a real threat to freedom
3: One of the things that we've heard from primarily those on the right, but even a couple of folks on the left, is uh, the idea of repealing the Section 230 protection that some of these social media companies enjoy. That would subject them to the same sort of uh, legal liabilities that a radio station or a television station might have. Is that a good idea?
4: I don't think so. When, When do lawsuits solve much? Look, I'm suing Facebook. Because they lied about me. They let their fact, their climate hysteria fact checkers limit my reach. Um, I'm suing them because they put stuff in quotes. I didn't say the fact checkers reviewed my piece but never watched it. So that's defamation. That's different. But Facebook has a right to cut me off if they want to.
3: Uh, What's the status of that defamation lawsuit against Facebook?
4: I just lost the first round. A California judge threw it out and said, their fact checks are just an opinion, and they have every right to do that. And the fact that they put what Stossel said in quotes doesn't mean that that's what Stossel said. It just (laughs) meant that this video implied that. I mean, if I had put something in quotes... At Fox or ABC or CBS or NBC, all places where I've worked, it wasn't an actual quote and then refused to take it down when I got called on it. I would have been fired. But this judge says, no, that's fine.
3: I saw on Stossel TV a recent interview you did with uh, Tim Poole. I have to confess, Tim Poole was not somebody that I was familiar with. I suspect many in our audience weren't either. Uh, This was a fascinating interview that touched upon a wide range of subjects. Uh, Folks can check it out at uh, johnstossel.com. Again, uh, who is Tim Poole if folks who are are listening aren't familiar with him?
4: Tim Poole is this guy who never got involved with an official – network and never went to college, never even graduated high school, uh, dropped out and just started going to riots and war zones and different interesting places and talking about it, uh, and has built a very successful YouTube following, much like I did, uh, And now he's become a Trumpy, apparently. That interview, weirdly, was over a year old. And suddenly it went viral on YouTube. Why these things happen, I don't know.
3: Yeah, it's all go it all goes into the mystery of this uh this social media algorithm which has a lot of folks uh scratching their head. I alluded to the fact that you're the founder of something called the Center for Independent Thought. I believe this is actually a nonprofit. What is this? What is the Center for Independent Thought? What are you hoping to do with this?
4: It is a nonprofit. Social TV uh is funded by a nonprofit too. We get contributions from viewers. I hope some of your listeners will Contribute, But the Center for Independent Thought is uh, a nonprofit that lets us offer these videos to teachers. I used to get phone calls from teachers saying, oh, I wish I recorded that. That's really a good way for me to explain price gouging to my students or the minimum wage. And and it is because it's much more interesting than a college professor yammering about it because we've spent a month editing it and researching it. And Center for Independent Thought delivers these to teachers who want them.
3: A lot of folks listening are small government advocates. A lot of folks listening are people that uh, value things like freedom. Uh, They like low taxes. Uh, They like uh, having the government not tell them what to do. And a lot of folks listening to us are folks that are pretty optimistic that the Republicans seem poised to take back one or both houses of Congress in a few weeks. If folks are small government advocates and they believe in freedom, should they actually be optimistic about the Republicans taking back Congress this year?
4: Uh, not very. Certainly, they're better than the spend a zillion times more money than we have Democrats. But a lot of the Republicans are authoritarians and not friends of the free and open debate, not friends of economic freedom.
3: Uh, right now,
4: electionbettingodds.com, sh- which is my best guide to what's going to happen, I see it says the Democrats have lost ground. They lost 1.6 uh, percent in the last day, but there's still slight favorites to take the Senate, 52 to 47. The House, it's 84 percent that the Republicans will take the House.
3: Lastly, whether folks are on the left or on the right, a lot of folks listening take their elections very seriously. And if their side loses, it's not like the Mets or the Yankees losing. They actually get depressed and think that this means disastrous implications for their own future and the future of the world. I've heard you point out before that uh, folks tend to have too much of their own emotional happiness invested in which political party wins do you still feel that way
4: yes because there are checks and balances and the best of life happens outside politics it's our families and our friends and our jobs and sports and music and entertainment and the it's only five percent of us who think about politics all the time and it's not a route to happiness
3: that's for sure. Uh, John Stossel, you could check him out and uh, make a contribution so that you could see a lot of the great work that he's doing continue at johnstossel.com. John, it's always a treat to talk with you. Thanks so much. You too, Frank. If you want to comment on any portion of our discussion, you're welcome to give me a call, 1 800 848 9222. That's 1 800 848
1: 9222. Straight ahead. The other side of midnight. midnight.
3: Like you, Edwin Collins, I have to say this is a pretty good selection by our own Matt Blaze. Where did you uh, dig this one up, Matt Blaze?
11: I saw it on one of my uh, DJ lists, and I said, "Oh, we got to get this song. This is a good one."
3: Well, I um, now, where are all the songs that I've been seeking that are supposedly in the in the pipeline? They, they I feel like they're being. They're here. They're being out. bottlenecked, right? Ne- they, don't, they don't make it onto the air. It's always the danger of the, the, the one, last more one step.
11: The last one was on your fair list. Fair
3: enough, fair enough. Okay. Well, uh, this is pretty good. I can't complain about this. If you ever want to know what kind of music we're playing on the show, just uh, join our Facebook group, Murano Radio Fans and Haters. We post the artist and the songs on there. You know, Did you notice there's a pillow in the studio? I did not. Yeah, well, so I is. see it now. now yeah. I'm I I don't know. I've never seen a pillow in the studio before. It was sitting in the guest chair, and I didn't notice it until I sat down uh, to talk with Dominic Carter before our show. And I have to say, it's a little... It basically looks like a throw pillow, but it's it's flatter than a throw pillow. It is super comfortable. And so I thought about using this pillow... In the broadcast chair for the duration of the program, but then two things stop me. One, this pillow, and I don't know why I never thought about this, but this pillow is so comfortable that I am actually concerned that I might fall asleep because it will make the sitting experience so much more comfortable for the next couple of hours. And the other thing is, uh, Julie Globus is kind enough to come in studio. You're going to hear from her in a minute, and uh, she's kind enough to make the trip all the way into Manhattan. In uh, the middle of the night, basically, I figured the least I could do is at least be somewhat gentlemanly and let her have the right of first pillow refusal. So we're going to let her sit with this pillow on the back of her chair, if she chooses. If not, I may, may use it again. All right. Um, we are going to delve into the world of yeshiva education next hour. And there's a whole bunch of other issues related to that. Political issues, economic issues, issues of uh, religious freedom, issues of freedom of speech. And uh, Julie Globus has been very outspoken on a lot of that. We're going to get into that and a whole lot more. This is The Other Side of Midnight. In the words of the great Bob Barker, help control the pet population. Get your dog or cat spayed or neutered.
1: This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano.
3: A few weeks ago, the New York Times, on a Sunday, did a front-page, above-the-fold series of articles. Well, it began with one article, and then it turned into a series of articles – On the failures of yeshiva education in New York and how essentially uh, that New York State has abdicated its role in teaching all sorts of children. And when it came time to try and do something about this, a lot of the people responsible for trying to make improvements to the situation were nowhere to be found. There was a stark pushback to this articles from some in the Orthodox Jewish community and the Hasidic Jewish community. And this has been debated. Uh, We've talked a little bit about this on this program. And the issue of yeshiva education and the, what some would say, lack of education that's going on in yeshivas is not a new one. But uh, it is interesting that it's now getting so much attention. Whenever the New York Times pays attention to something, that tends to be the reaction. The interesting thing about this article was that it was printed both in English and in Yiddish. So uh, it was clearly designed to try and reach some of the people in the community that, uh, that the article was written about. What I had hoped to do is have a... Honest discussion about this issue and something of a debate between people that sided with the New York Times version of what was happening and people that were on the other side. I did hear back from a number of folks that were willing to uh, take the. For lack of a better description, the pro yeshiva side of the debate, I heard from uh, Larry Gordon, the editor of the uh, the editor of a, a t- t- newspaper out in Long Island, uh, the five town Jewish Times. I heard from uh, a radio talk show host by the name of Elliot Resnick, but neither of them were able to come in studio, so I thought what we would do is turned to somebody that uh, we haven't seen in a while, but who has been very outspoken on this issue. She is an attorney, and uh, she was the publisher of the Lost Messiah blog. Very proud to welcome back Julie Globus. And my thinking was we could take some calls, as long as people are polite. Last time Julie was here, we had one person call her Hitler. No need for that. (laughs) Uh, and uh, then, what we can do in another week or two is have one of these other folks that has a different view come in and have their voice heard, and then maybe in another few weeks, we can have Julie and somebody else in studio together when uh, when everybody's schedules work. Uh, let me welcome back Julie Glovis. Hello Julie
0: Hi, Thanks for welcoming me back it 's been a while.
3: Yeah, it's been a- almost two years, and uh, I guess maybe I didn't have a full appreciation for the last time that you walked in here. It really did look sort of like a different radio station, right?
0: Yes, I felt like I needed a hard hat to <laughs> walk
3: in here. <laughs> we were just—I uh, think uh, you w- one of our—you were one of our first guests when we had moved in, and uh, certainly it was—we uh, had a very rustic look uh, back then, and uh, now everything is uh, is is up to up to snuff, I'd say, right? High tech, very high tech. All yeah, right. Uh, the big question on everybody mind is you are now sitting on a chair braced by that pillow that i was talking about last hour what do you think how is the pillow
0: uh it's a pillow (laughs) i haven't i haven't figured out yet
3: okay well so it's not necessarily you're not wowed by it
0: it um no it's actually not that i'm wowed by it it's that i am injured from a, a race i did recently so i'm not wowed by sitting at all so
3: Yeah, so you were telling me uh, during the the top-of-the-hour news, you did, since last I saw you, you've done three races?
0: So I think since the last time I saw you, I've done more than that. But this summer, I did three 70.3 half Ironman
3: races. 70.3 half Ironman? Yes. So that's where you swim, you bike, and then you run?
0: So it's a 1.2-mile swim it's a 56-mile bike, and then it's a half marathon at the end.
3: You know, I am now forced to agree with all the people that are about to call me and say that you're
0: crazy. <laughs> well, <laughs> um, on, on, on Halloween Eve, there is a race that I want to sign up for. It's been a bucket list race. It's 444 miles and 44 hours on a bicycle. Wow. On the Natchez Trace Parkway, and that's been my bucket list for years. It's, um, it's a straight bike race. Um, you just have to finish in 44 hours and it requires sort of a lot of logistics. So I've been sort of planning it for a couple of years, but it is hard to get into because it's a very limited field and it's sort of a joke. They do it at midnight on Halloween central time. So I've already done (laughs) the pre-registration for it. And
3: are you still planning to participate even though you're injured?
0: Uh, yeah, I mean, it's a year away and I'm already signed up for to redo oh, that. Oh, it's next holiday. Yeah. Okay. I'm, I'm already signed up to redo the main race, which I didn't finish because I got injured. And I'm signed up for a Western Pennsylvania race already, a 70.3 for next year. Well,
3: and so the the injury is not doing anything to uh, get you to slow down? No. All. God bless you. That's wonderful. Uh, Let that be a warning for you. (laughs) Exercise at your own peril, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, Matt Blaze and I, you don't see us dealing with any injuries. I'll just say that. Um, Now, Julie, uh, just so for folks that haven't heard our previous conversations, uh, tell folks a little bit about your background. Uh, You're Jewish, right? You grew up... So,
0: yes. I am Jewish. I grew up in a household where my parents were first generation. Um, My Uncle and my grandfather were Yiddish speakers, so I learned, I did learn Yiddish at home, although it was a different, sort of very different than Yiddish today. Um, I grew up, my grandmother spoke seven languages. Uh, she had been brought here as a 14-year-old to marry a 35-year-old to escape Europe. Mm. Um, because and, of the Holocaust? Uh, it was before the Holocaust, but it was when they started to see things going south. Uh she was from Stachin and she was brought over on a boat with her brothers, you know, as an immigrant. Um and, you know, by today's standards it may have actually been sex traffic get, traffic to get here, but whatever it is. And my my uncle was a a Yiddish professor at uh Brooklyn College or yeah, Brooklyn College. He was the preeminent scholar on Yiddish. My grandfather was a Yiddish writer. They had um been they had escaped the holocaust and ultimately believed that the you couldn't have a god and a and a show at the same time but the culture of Judaism was very important so where I lit the candles I went to an orthodox hebrew school after school um you know it was sort of rebellious because it was sort of confusing and then I, at, at 21 I got a scholarship to go to Israel spent a year there and you know, one of the immediate things they do was there was a, a guy who who used to bring you—he wanted you to feel welcome there. It was a an indoctrination of sorts, but I was trying to find myself. So I I became part of the—I went to Hebrew U, but I also became part of the ultra-Orthodox community. And I was taken from house to house on Friday nights, met lovely people, absolutely lovely people, felt comfortable. It was a, a beautiful comfort, but then— you know, as time went on, I came home one summer. My mother didn't know what to do with me. She was in tears. And there was a piece of me that said...
3: Well, and she was in tears because you were moving more in an orthodox direction? I was
0: just... I wouldn't eat in the house, and I wouldn't turn on the lights. And, you know, there was this issue of ripping toilet paper. It's all... You know, a lot of it is rituals. And she didn't know how to relate. She and I had been very close. And at some on some level, I said to myself is this what it's all about? You know, do we have it? it did, in my view, does whatever I'm worshiping really want me to suddenly betray my parents and have them not really be able to relate to me? So I backed up a bit, found my balance, met my husband, got married, uh, ended up getting my master's in Israel, came back here for law school. Um, you know, he, we speak Hebrew at home. Um, he, uh, uh his family, his father's family had been very religious as well at some point. And in Israel, you know, they teach religious subjects and secular subjects. So Israel, all public school students learn, you know, quite a lot about the religious subjects. It was at the time, it was a very small community of people who were exempt from secular learning because of a, a Bangorian's desire, as I understand it, to keep keep some level of faith within the community. And I don't think Bengu I, I really don't think the expectation was that it would become the sort of us versus them environment that it was, that it's become there as well as here. So I've had a, a movement of identities back and forth, but have a tremendous amount of respect for the religious community. Um, I was welcomed in, in it and, and learned to understand a lot. There were a few things that turned me off to it, but um, you know, Oh, I was raised in a house where Jews got educated. I was either going to be a doctor or a lawyer. When I came home with a ninety nine, it was what happened to the point. Mm-hmm. It wasn't a great. You got a ninety nine, and and you know I was a gymnast at the time. But Jewish, my you know my parents were Jewish. Kids are not gymnasts. They're they're scholars, and so for me, understand. I re, you know I understood. I heard Elie Wiesel speak in Yiddish on on you know on his writings. I went to Yiddish Culture Congress meetings where I was brought in to learn that sort of side of things. And generally most of these people were sort of old school socialists as well who believed in, you know, all ships rise with the tide. So it was a very my, – my dad worked on Wall Street. There were a lot of confusing aspects to my upbringing, but eventually I found some sort of balance. And I suppose more recently I found that, that the lexicon we use as – as people who discuss these issues has to – you're walking on sort of a razor's edge because particularly now with how, it, how anti-Semitism is, has been on the rise, when you find Jews speaking up about Jewish problems, it becomes an issue, and then you find the very ultra-Orthodox who don't believe in the existence of the state of Israel, and and you see them featured sometimes on these terrorist websites – because, hey, if the if the ultra-Orthodox don't believe in the state of Israel and believe that it we can't be—we're not welcomed in that state or we haven't earned that state without sort of its destruction to some extent, it, it's also used against us.
3: Yeah, I remember one of those groups, uh, they bought advertising on this radio station about 16 years ago. I don't think we've ever gotten as much negative <laughs> mail as when we ran the commercial— from one of these groups saying how, you know, real Jews essentially don't believe that uh, Israel should exist and that kind of a thing. Uh, people were very fired up about that. Oh,
0: yeah. I mean, one of the dinners that I went to, which was ultimately one of the turnoffs, it's, it's kind of a long story, but the, I'm going to make it short, was so I'm sitting down at this beautiful table. I won't say where it was because I don't know if they still own the house. Extraordinary amounts of money. He sits me down and he says, well, you know, you're not really Jewish. And I said, what do you mean? He said, your upbringing, you didn't, you you weren't Shomer Shabbat, you didn't keep the Sabbath. And I said, so how am I less Jewish? He said, nope, you're not Shomer Shabbat, you're therefore not Jewish. So I said to him, well, you know, I'm guessing a lot more of my relatives died in Auschwitz and Birkenau and Treblinka and and Bergen-Belsen than yours did, but we won't, we won't have this tit for tat. But, you know, as I see it, I am Jewish. And then in in a sort of a weird situation he says to me let's have this discussion in another room so he calls me into this other room and he says to me you know there's this there's this like 10 day period of what's called nida which is ritual impurity how about i meet you and we meet up and you'll never want for anything and i said so you're basically asking me if I'll be a whore so he said to me well no i wouldn't call it that you'll be my companion during nida Meaning when
3: his wife was experiencing that.
0: I said, wait a minute, I'm Jewish. He said, well, no, you're really not. That was like his belief. And it took me a lot. I mean, I spoke to rabbis. I spoke to a lot of people to understand what that perspective was. It was a very limited perspective. I don't know. And I'm not generalizing that this is to everybody. But it was one of these situations where I was like, huh, how do I feel about this? I was a 20-year-old college student, right? I was getting my master's there. And... I found it really quite offensive and started to look into, you know, is this the traditional belief? And there is some sort of mixed, and I don't, don't misunderstand me, I don't attribute this to the entire community. And I'm, you know, I'm not even sure if any of the community agrees with it or doesn't agree with it, but it sort of made me think where I fit in the spectrum of my religious belief versus my cultural because Judaism tends to be both religious and cultural. Mm -hmm. It's a weird mix, and how I felt about, you know, my place in all of it.
3: Um, so ultimately you became very outspoken in your criticism of what was going on in certain yeshivas. And we're going to get into that in in just a minute. But just so folks understand some of the terms that we're going to use or that you're going to use When we use the term uh, Orthodox Jewish, when we use the term Hasidic, when we use the term Observant, what are each of those things?
0: So Hasidic is a sect of of ultra orthodoxy. I have to use the word ultra because they're a little beyond just Orthodox. There's modern Orthodox, there's uh, Hasidic, there's ultra Orthodox, and then you know I would use the word fundamentalist beyond that.
3: Fundamentalist being more extreme than more Hasidic.
0: Yeah, they're more extreme.
3: Why did you make a face when I said Hasidic?
0: Um, Because, you know, that one, that term applies to a very specific group of ultra-Orthodox Jews. And, you know, if you call somebody who's ultra-Orthodox and you say it's Hasidic, some of them will just sort of frown at you and get offended. The word that's used in, in Hebrew to sort of as the umbrella term is Haredi, which is a little more accurate. Um, I've seen people. I've had people say to me, "Look, ultra orthodox is a little offensive." But then I've seen it in writing in the same, you know, newspapers. The Forward, mm-hmm. um, you know, a bunch of these newspapers, the the Times of Israel, the the um, Jewish the Jewish Times, a few of them that have said, "Well, ultra orthodox is an offend- offensive term because what does it mean to be ultra?" You know, so I think it's a level of observance, but Hasidic refers to a specific sect of.
3: Got it. Okay, well, uh, we're going to continue with Julie Globus in just a minute and talk about this uh, ex- explosive New York Times article and the response to it, and how some elected officials are reacting to it, not only in New York, but outside of New York as well, and what it means for the taxpayers, what it means for parents, what it means for you. We have a lot of uh, listeners in the Orthodox Jewish community, so we're going to get into that, and we'll take your calls as well throughout the hour, 800 that's 800 848-9222. This is the Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead.
1: The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano.
3: The great Nancy Sinatra here on the other side of Midnight. I'm Frank Moreno here with Julie Globus, an attorney, the founder of the Lost Messiah blog, and uh, somebody who has been very vocal about some of the shortcomings of some of the education that goes on in certain yeshivas. Uh, Julie, I mentioned uh, the Lost Messiah blog. I know that became very controversial. What is or what was the Lost Messiah blog? What made you want to launch that?
0: So it's still – the blog is still up. I don't put a lot – I don't have the time actually. I put a lot of time into it. Um, it was a blog that was intended to pick up on issues of um, sexual abuse within the religious community, fraud within the religious community, and issues of uh, lack of education, um, m- financing to yeshivas that were not appropriately educating their students, and – Uh, white collar fraud, which are some of like the, you know, the real sort of chafing issues for me, both as a Jew and as a Jew in Rockland, actually. Um, And it it had quite a following. I just at some point, you know, things went awry. And I was uh, naive in a lot of respects, or as somebody once referred to me as an idealist that needed to grow out of my idealism. And I've I've not been posting a lot to it, although one of the issues that I that I covered obsessively that was denied cert in the Supreme Court this past week, which was sort of indication for me. But it, it you know, it it was a, a big blog and it was intended to take over or at least to fill a gap that failed Messiah, which had been running for years and years. Um, that
3: was another blog, Failed yeah, Messiah, yeah. and then you you were sort of the sequel. You lost I Messiah. tried, yeah. Okay. Um, so we mentioned this New York Times article on yeshiva education. If people uh, didn't get to read it, I posted it at the time. I talked a little bit about it at the time. In a nutshell, what did it say about what goes on in a lot of yeshivas?
0: So it culminated with a multi-year research project by the journalists who had um, gone in and examined the yeshivas, spoken to people who had graduated from the yeshivas, spoken to parents who had filed suits against yeshivas for, for educational neglect, essentially. Um,
3: all in New York or beyond New York as well? Um,
0: it was all in New York, but it, it did speak... There there was some beyond the borders because there are connected yeshivas in, in Lakewood. Um, there are some yeshivas in Canada that have the same problem, but it really focused on New York. And it basically... Looked at the yeshivas in terms of like region scores and the comparisons of the yeshiva students versus the public school students and looked at the most failing yeshivas. I have to be honest. There are a lot of very successful yeshivas that are teaching their kids both yeshiva studies and some secular studies. Um, Secular studies tend to go beyond certain ages for women, for young girls and not for boys. Um, And then it was pretty scathing. When it came to the ones where these kids were graduating and not being able to string sentences in English together. Uh,
3: one of the people that uh, I first spoke to about this maybe about, uh, I guess, four or five years ago was Naftuli Moster, the founder of a group called Yafed. And he talked about his own experience coming out of a yeshiva. And then he finds himself in college. And uh, he, they, the professor used the word "molecule," and he had never heard the word "molecule" before, and he looks around and he doesn't understand why all the other students aren't as confused as he is, and they had all had a at least basic understanding of what a molecule was. Um, he is of the belief that um, these a lot of these yeshivas were totally negligent in teaching anything except torah studies it sounds like you're of that same school of thought i,
0: I am of the same school of thought there look it's not every yeshiva so i don't i don't want people to think i'm this is a global every yeshiva and generalizing but the the yeshivas that were looked at there were 28 of them i believe in that story um they they teach nothing of as far as secular subjects they don't teach science they don't teach math and they don't teach english and then forget about the civic studies um and in not knowing the word molecule, he, he went into a class where he didn't even know what he didn't know. And and molecule is not mutually exclusive from the teachings, uh, you know, from the te- Torah teachings. Right. You could
3: learn the Torah and what a molecule is.
0: Uh, absolutely. There's nothing, you know, my favorite thing is to walk into the Metropolitan Museum of Art or the Museum of Modern History and see Hasidic kids or Haredi kids walking around with their families. It's very unusual. Because then I know they're being exposed to this, but in many of these communities, the kids are not exposed to anything.
3: So your analysis and your own research and your own observation of these uh, twenty-eight schools, you found that the Times reporting, which found that they were doing these children a real disservice, it sounds like you you came to the same conclusion independently.
0: Well, I mean, it goes back to two thousand fourteen when I first started looking at these issues. Um, There were a number. Of, of journalists who, who wrote about this in 2014, 2015. JTA came out with a huge article and they too didn't get their vindication until the New York Times really picked up on this issue. And obviously the New York Times had to, had a sensitive topic to subject to, to to deal with. But, you know, and and claims of anti-Semitism are just nonsense because the, 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 the per, people who did the article were themselves Jewish. And yes, there is a, a systemic... Educational neglect amongst many of these yeshivas and their children are being neglected of, you know, a fair and appropriate public education of faith, which is what's used in, in New York lexicon.
3: Right, right. In New York state, it's actually in the state constitution that children, whether they're educated in public school or in private school or at home school, they are required to get a sound basic education, I guess, up until the eighth grade. Right.
0: Um. Yes, well, it's actually federal law requires that they receive a fair and appropriate public education. This is the basis for due process complaints in the public school system. So
3: these yeshivas are violating state law?
0: They're violating, yes, absolutely.
3: And uh, I remember this was an issue in the de Blasio era. It resulted in the firing of his own uh, Department of Investigation commissioner. Why... I mean, clearly, you mentioned going back to 2014 on this. It doesn't sound like it's difficult to see what was going on in some of these schools. Why was nothing done about this?
0: Well, look, a lot of it is money. I mean, if I'm honest, the the yeshivas themselves receive a fortune in public funding. They, about how much? Ballpark. Oh, I some of these yeshivas, I'm guessing it, it. You're looking at hundreds of thousands to the millions. They receive it through E-rate funding, which are, are public grants and subsidies intended to increase libraries, increase at, increase um, internet access, which these kids are denied altogether. There's public, there's free lunches to the kids, and m- my son in a public school doesn't get a free lunch. He pays up to between five and ten dollars a day. I I pay. I don't know what's subsidized from the federal government, but you're looking at, in I think in Rockland, there's. 20, in, in East Ramapo, there's 27,000 students that are yeshiva students that are in that public school gamut, which means they're bused to the public schools, to the yeshivas, and um, busing is between 8 and 14% of a school budget. So if you're looking at $230 million as a budget, and I think East Ramapo is now higher, you're looking at at least $23 million just from that source alone that's funneled to To bus these kids to to yeshivas, and and then there's the school lunch program, and then there's the E rate and other financial funding, and then there are Pell grants that are offered to some of these kids who don't go to college. So it's there's money being funneled from all over the place. They're very good at applying for those 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 fundings where public schools lack that sort of savvy.
3: You mentioned a lawsuit. Uh- brought by some parents to try and change this and try and challenge the fact that their children were being denied a sound basic education in violation of state and federal law. But it sounds like there are a lot of parents that were um, not vocal, not bringing a lawsuit, and almost complacent. Why do so many parents seem to put up with this?
0: Well, so the way the community works is, within any religious community let's just let's just say the uh, i'm just going to say the satmar cuz it's the first one that comes to mind there are rabbis that govern the both the community and they're sort of they tell they tell the parents which yeshivas to send their kids to they're say you know i don't know two three whatever and if the kids don't go to the yeshivas or the parents do something to defy the 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 mandates of the of the rabbinical elite or, you know, rabbinical governance, they're shunned from the community. These kid the kid you know, the, the parents are outspoken. The kids suffer, uh, suffer the sins of the parents. So many of these parents, it's not that they're complacent. It's that they want the best for their kids within their community mm-hmm. because they want them to feel that sense of acceptance. And yet the only way to do that is to sort of it's, it's a Faustian bargain almost to sell their, you know, the. So the one thing in, in, in favor of the other and to do the weight and balances of what's more important, which is, you know, kind of di- disturbing in a lot of regards. Because, it, let I mean, I'll give you a quick example. I represented a family. They kept their kids at home because they didn't like, I mean, New York State public schools are not, they're not perfect either. This family didn't want their kids in public school. Somebody made a complaint. CPS got involved. The courts got involved. And this family was charged with educational neglect, even though the mother was teaching the kids subjects and submitting paperwork to the public school. So if she's being held to the standard of public education as a homeschooled child, then why is the counterpart in a religious school not held to the same standards? I mean, she spent a year back and forth in and out of court, paid a lot of money to fight a lot of this.
3: We're talking with Julie Globus. If you want to comment or if you have a question, uh, you can give us a call, 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. In terms of the response from uh, some folks in the um, Orthodox Jewish community to the New York Times article, there was swift and pretty vociferous condemnation of the New York Times reporting. Did you have a chance to look at any of the criticism in response to the Times article? What was the gist of it, and what's your take on
0: it? So there's a lot of criticism of it. I mean, part of it is because uh, the belief is these kids in the school, they get critical reasoning, they get Socratic method, they get some level of gematria, which is the numerical equivalent of Math as it applies to uh, a review of the Torah—it's an oversimplification. They get there; it's—it's not that they're not educated, but the feeling is once they come out of the the yeshiva system, they've spent twelve, fourteen, sixteen hours at school. They're—they're they're coming out with the, the a, an education that can be applied to secular subjects once they're out, if that's what they want to do, even though they're going to be chained to a to a, a community that there's, there's no way out of. Uh, I'll give you something really quick. I, I read – so one of the cases that I was so deeply involved in and just, that just denied was denied cert, I read one of the sentencing memos. And within the context of the sentencing memo, there was one letter that just caught my attention of a guy who was referring to the person being sentenced – I'm not going to name names here – as a mensch. And why is he a mensch? Because he knew the exact – are close to the exact words Were I had graduated from a typical yeshiva. I had no sense of, I couldn't string an English sentence together. I didn't know math. I was unskilled and he was a mensch because he hired me. He brought me into the fray. He taught me the trading of the, you know, of the fun He taught me how the funds work. He taught me the background. So he should be given this mensch kite understanding by the sentencing judge when the sensing is done and nobody's looking at the like outside the scope of this argument you have a letter that was submitted to judge kogan on this one where he's defending you know he's giving this this character witness letter because he was he left a, a typical yeshiva education as he puts it where everybody knows according to him that there's that the, he wasn't going to come out with the appropriate level of education necessary to find a job and here was a guy who saved him no nobody's looking at those letters. I just happen to stumble upon it, and that's you know that's like the you know what's referred to as the dying declaration. Mm-hmm. sort of you you couldn't be more honest than that. It's an affidavit,
3: so you have a situation where, based on not only the New York Times reporting but a lot of other observations that um some Hasidic Jewish schools in the state of New York have denied at least 50,000 students a sound basic education and at the same time gotten more than a billion dollars in government funds over the last four years. Uh, The mayor of the city of New York, Eric Adams, was asked about this. He said, quote, I'm not concerned about the findings of the article. Um, Do you think that he should be?
0: Well, I think he should be. I mean, look, you're talking about a lot of money. I think he He took the out because he doesn't want to get into a politically charged argument. Um,
3: Why is educating children and wanting the best education for children in your city, why is that a politically charged argument?
0: Well, because there's money. There's money. There are donations. And a lot of the donations coming from yeshivas. And
3: he had a lot of support when he ran from the Orthodox Jewish community, right? Absolutely.
0: And, of course, because of these sort of new super PAC things, they don't have to actually register who's, Mm -hmm. who's donating. But you can find... Dozens of donations from yeshivas that, by the way, also receive PPP loans. I mean, on top of everything else, and he's—I don't know that he's not. Ultimately, I don't know that, he's, that he shouldn't be concerned because ten years, a generation from now, you're going to have you're going to have more people on on subsidized living because they can't themselves support themselves, whether we like it or not.
3: Well, have we seen that in? Um, in communities that have a uh, large Hasidic population where this goes on in a lot of, in a lot of yeshivas, uh, communities uh, like some of what you've talked about in Rockland, uh, Curious Joel, other places in Orange County. Do these folks have – do these communities have a lot of need for public welfare and, and, and subsidies because folks are uneducated and un- unable to get a job?
0: Well, Kiryas Joel has been listed many years in a row as one of the poorest cities in the country. Um, New Square comes to a close second or third. Um, whether it's because whether I can make that direct correlation about education and 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 uh, welfare, I would say yes, I can. There's, I mean, well, if you
3: come out of school without any marketable skills, it's work. tough to get a job.
0: Absolutely. So and Curious Joel has been written about for years now, I think, referred to as Palm Tree, New York, but it's been referred to for years and years and years as one of the most impoverished. um, Cities or municipalities or whatever, incorporated entities in the country. So, yes, I believe it's going to be a problem and I believe it's going to be a huge problem in New York.
3: The New York State Board of Regents uh, approved a new set of standards for private schools, including yeshivas. uh, What did they do?
0: What they did ostensibly was they defined what it is to be substantially equivalent or substantially similar. And they've said in order to accept funding, you need to provide a substantially similar, substantial equivalency test education for the kids, which means meeting certain standards. And by the way, those standards are not ridiculous. Um, And those standards don't are not mutually exclusive from teaching whatever you're teaching in your schools. And it's been d- done for all religious schools. I, I mean, they had to. And basically it says we're going to start lo- looking into your schools and making sure that your kids are coming out with a substantially similar, or substantially equivalent education. And if the yeshivas are right, adding this um, aspect to their education will then – surpass New York State education and might force New York State to better educate their kids. So So it sounds
3: like the Board of Regents did the right thing.
0: Oh, I believe so. Eight hundred
3: eight four eight nine two two two. It is interesting, though, that even though the Board of Regents moved forward with this, in the aftermath of the New York Times article, the governor, the governor Kathy Hochul, who's of course up for election this year, she did whatever she could to distance herself from the move by the Board of Regents. She was quoted as saying, "This is out of the purview of the governor. There's a regulatory process in place, but the governor's office has nothing to do with this. This is an independent entity." For something that's uh, so positive, she seemed to uh, distance herself from this. Now, you might think maybe that's an opportunity for her Republican opponent, Congressman Lee Zeldin, to uh, highlight an issue where he could talk about why he's the education candidate. And yet here was Congressman Zeldin on September 13th talking about the vote uh, by the Board of Regents.
12: This morning, the Board of Regents voted unanimously on these new substantial equivalency regs targeting yeshivas and other non-public education. Inside of these yeshivas, we have young kids who are receiving an education that is promoting values, values of service, of family. Boys and girls living law-abiding lives. And it's important that they get this great leadership from an early age. We had an opportunity here for so many in state government to be able to speak up and defend everything that's great about a yeshiva education. But unfortunately, too many people were silent. Governor Hochul was one of them. It's important when you're the governor of the state of New York to speak up for what is right. And that New York Times story that came out this past Sunday was a hit piece. So
3: you have uh, Eric Adams, a Democrat, former Republican, who says he's not concerned about the article. You have Kathy Hochul that says, I have nothing to do with the Board of Regents increasing or at least putting in some sort of educational standards. And you have Lee Zeldin going even further, saying that the reporting from The New York Times was not only inaccurate, but it was a hit piece, and Governor Hochul ought to be more vocal Does the fact that uh, three of the most prominent politicians in the state, uh, all from different parts of the state, uh, different political parties, does the fact that all three of them are not embracing the desire to educate children in these schools indicate that they're afraid of the political clout among some in the Haredi community?
0: So uh, uh, there's a lot to unpack there. Let me start with one point. The answer to your question is yes. They're too well-funded. The, the Haredi community, they are not stupid. They are very savvy. They fund everybody. So they'll give more funding now, and, and the rabbis will say support Zeldin because he's not going to put any – he's going to try and undo the restrictions on, on the education. He's already said he's going to take a hands-on approach. There's another statement somewhere that he said it. He's been arguing since uh, very early on before that statement that – he he wasn't gonna to touch the yeshiva education. Now he's come out affirmatively and said this is all wrong. But the 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 thing that bothers me the most is he said, Oh, these yeshiva kids, they're getting morals and family values and they're being taught to, to love one another. Basically he's saying every other student in the state of New York is not being taught to love mm. one another, is not being given a moral education, is not being this is not being governed by a standard of morality. So not only did he speak out in favor of these yeshivas, but he also insulted everybody wow. else. Which which I find appalling, utterly appalling, because what he has said is, oh, we're gonna allow the New York State schools to fail their schools by not teaching morality. And we're going to allow the Shiva schools to, to fail their kids by not teaching secular subjects because morality is enough.
3: And, and it sounds like this was a pretty blatant act of political pandering.
0: Absolutely. Yeah. 800 848
3: 22 We're going to continue w- with your calls. I've been uh, hogging Julie's wisdom for the last uh, 40 minutes or so. We're going to let you ask questions. And if you disagree... That's great. Just disagree politely. No uh-huh. need to call anybody Hitler. 800-848-9222. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead.
1: The Other Side of Midnight. 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 It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Murano.
3: This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Moreno. That's uh, Bono and Mary J. Blige. We're joined in studio uh, by Julie Globus. She is an attorney and uh, the publisher of the Lost Messiah blog. You can find that just by Googling Lost Messiah. We've been talking about... What's going on in terms of the failure of a lot of yeshivas to educate their students, the politicians on both sides of the aisle that seem very eager to pander uh, to, um, to not do anything about this, and the taxpayers that foot the bill? for a lot of this, to the tune of about a billion dollars over the last four years. 800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-9222. Let me say hello to Anne in Brooklyn. Hello, Anne.
13: Hi, hi. Thanks hi. for taking my call. Sure. Okay, I disagree very strongly regarding that the uh, Hasidic students are not prepared to support themselves. I am what you, David, call ultra-Orthodox. I have a lot of Hasidic relatives the acidic, um, I think, in general, earn, I think, maybe even above average salaries, like 100000 or more. However, because they have very large families, seven, eight children, they might be classified as poor, but they are still earning high incomes. It's just the large family size that makes them classified as poor, so they're not unpre- you know, ill-prepared to earn a living. They're actually... Earning, you know, nice, whatever middle class incomes, it's just the large family sizes that make them appear. But they are, you know, you know, they're working and they're earning nice salaries.
3: What about that, Julie? You know, I have uh, one child and I know that uh, I'm a lot closer to poverty than I was 10 months ago. Uh, Does Anne have a point that maybe it's about having seven, eight children, not about a lack of education?
0: Okay, so there's two parts to that question. And Anne, I appreciate the question. Um, but it's not every yeshiva. It's not every Hasidic person. And I appreciate the, the salaries. I appreciate all of it. The question is, are they limited in the jobs that they can find? Did they have to do extra work to come out of school and learn the skills because they didn't have the appropriate English and math? And, I, you know, maybe not. Maybe they went to a yeshiva that taught those skills. And, you know... this is not, I I tried to make the point along the way that this is not a broad generalization of every yeshiva. So, you know, I can appreciate what you're saying, but I I don't think the generalization that it works for everyone works either.
3: 800-848-9222. David is in the Bronx. Hello, David. Yes. Hello. Um, I'm going to ask a very
4: simple question and I hope I'm not oversimplifying it, but it seems to me that if I were a member of the Haridi community, that it would be to my advantage to make sure that my children were fully educated so they could go out into society and make something of themselves. Why are certain members, and let's be specific, certain members, not all, seem um, to want to keep this system going where children are not receiving an education and are not able to go out into the world? Because unlike your previous caller, we've Both know that there are communities in upstate New York where almost none of the men work. They're all on welfare and food stamps, and they all vote, which is why politicians are pandering. Thank you.
0: Um, David, thanks for the question. Um, So there are a couple of reasons for not wanting to educate the children. I do find myself perplexed by this because— one of the major speakers on this is a, a, one of the heads of Aguda to Israel, and he himself is highly educated. He's prominent. He's respectful. He's, he, I, we've had some back and forth, sort of a love-hate relationship, but he's super educated. So why they would not want to educate their children, I think, is because education is power. And the more you introduce the children to what might otherwise be secular subjects, the more you potentially leave them to question the a level of indoctrination, for lack of a better word, that they've been given, and it's unfortunate because on the one hand I've seen articles that say no, we are giving them secular education, we are meeting those expectations, and yet there's still lawsuits fighting these rules. And if you're doing what you're supposed to be doing, then what difference do the rules make? And for the ones that have argued, you know, viciously to have these 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 mandates overturned to ask yourself why they don't want their kids educated. It's because it's a control. You, you keep them locked into a community where they have no escape really, unless they can figure out an escape route for themselves or something that is referred to as OTD off the derech, which means off the path. You're some of this there. They fear education is going to get them there. 800-848-9222. That's
3: 800 9222 Simon is in Brooklyn. Hello, Simon. Yeah, hi,
14: Frankie. How you doing? Oh, good. Yeah, my question is, yeah, a lot of these um, Hasidic go for a rabbinical college. So I can understand. So, let's say compared to the Catholic Church, a lot of priests they only teach them Catholicism on their on their on their way. There's a lot of these boys are going there to, to becoming rabbis. Yeah, sure. You need a you need a English education, and I think that she's right. They should put in the schools at least two hours a day, or minimum. To teach these kids out the, you know, the English, basic English, and give them that direction. But um, a lot of these kids are growing up to be like ra- rabbis and rabbinical college, going out there. Well, they can't all be know.
3: rabbis, right? If there's a class of 20 yeah. or 30, uh, I don't think they can all grow up to be a rabbi, right,
14: Julie? Yeah, not everyone. Not, you know, the Torah, right? Not everyone's going to be a rabbi. You need the business world, you need the doctors, the lawyers, and the rabbis. So the problem is they're. Cutting everyone out to be look to be the same, so they gotta basically like go work around that, uh, You know, uh, not every be um, um, going. You know, not with a big beard and a big hat. And then you have you have kids who wanna they want they're dying to go out there and learn, and have an education. Uh, you know, be going to college and everything else.
3: Simon, let me let uh, Julie respond. I, before I we so
0: appreciate it. your comment because I, I agree with you. There, uh, you know. I have no lack of respect for the, the, the Torah learning. It is tough learning. But at the same time, the Torah says, I mean, the, some of the g- great rabbis say we have to be self-sufficient. The law of the land is the law, almost like when in Rome do as the Romans do. And you have to create a system of self-sufficiency. And yes, there is a, there is a need for rabbis. There is a need for a level of God-fearing morality, whether it comes from the church community or the, the Jewish community or, you know, the Presbyterian community, I think it sets a, mora- a morality factor in motion. But a, I, I completely agree with you. There, there has to be at least a few hours where you say, OK, we're going to teach the kids enough to survive in the, in the world, in the real world.
3: 800-848-9222. Rivke is in Brooklyn. Hello, Rivke.
0: Hi,
15: hi, Frank. You know I listen to you every night, but I wish you could have found a more educated uh, guest in this area. She is totally off. I happen to have been a teacher for many years. I actually worked for the Board of Education and worked in the yeshivas teaching reading. I mainly worked in the girls' schools, but I did have access to the boys' schools to help some boys who needed special help with learning to read. Now, I have to tell you that in the girls' schools, right through high school, they are taught, and even in Satma, I happen to have taught writing in Satma in Wiersberg. They are taught reading, writing, math, science, history. The girls are taught everything. And the kind of writing that I did with them, was so sophisticated, I don't think any student in the public school could handle it. They had to dissect paragraphs and give me a writing about it, and it was pretty sophisticated, that uh, article they had to work with. Now, as far as the boys' yeshivas go, they teach the basics in all the yeshivas through eighth grade. After that, all your guests are just telling a bunch of lies. The man that said that they're all on on, on the Medicaid or whatever, it's a lie. Right, Rivke, I want you to know, to be a rabbi, you have to be fluent in English and English
0: education, too. Don't you think
15: so?
3: I, I would think so. Don't uh, you
0: think so? I
3: would think I, so. Uh, Julie, respond to what Rivke said there.
0: Well, so I've attended... I've attended synagogue services to learn a little bit more about the rabbis. Most of them speak in in Yiddish or Hebrew, depending upon what they're reading, and then you speak to them in English. And some of them have a hard time stringing sentences together. Um, as far as the girls' schools, I'm not going to argue with you. the 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 New York the New York Times article focused mainly on the boys, not on the girls, because it it is you know widely known that girls are taught beyond uh, beyond uh, the grammar school. Um, education so there I wouldn't argue with you but when you say that you went through paragraphs are you talking you know life is but a poor player who struts and frets his hour upon the stage and then is heard no more or are you talking about translations of of religious texts because there's a difference between Shakespeare and religious texts I'm, you know what was it you were teaching really,
3: Julie we're going to have to end it there it, the hour always flies by whenever you're in studio uh, let's do this again soon uh, Julie Globus, you could check out the Lost Messiah blog. Until next hour, keep asking questions.
1: This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano.
3: Good morrow, everyone. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Moreno. You know what this song is, of course. This song is Enter Sandman. And uh, not only was it Mariano Rivera's theme song, not only was it um, Billy Wagner's theme song for a time, for a time it was Tom Likas' theme song on the radio. But if you listen to the lyrics to this song, there actually are, it's about going to sleep, essentially. And there's all sorts of other things. I mean, that's an oversimplification of the song itself. But the Sandman, Mister Sandman, is always associated with going to sleep. You remember the, you know, the old song, Mister Sandman, do 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 do. I sing that to Carmine sometimes, but I, I change the lyrics to Mister Carmine, do 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 do. Um, so it is no secret to many of us that America needs more sleep. Uh, I now America needs more sleep. The folks that uh, that work on the the second floor on odd hours. <laughs> I I would venture to say that a lot of us need more sleep as well.
6: Yes, that is correct.
3: And 80% of us try to catch up with naps. And I'm one of them. I like to nap. And I get frustrated when I'm unable to nap. You know what I did? I At um, around uh, an hour before I I came on the radio, I did what they call the nappuccino, where I had a big old cup of coffee and then took a 15-minute nap, 15 to 20-minute nap. Felt great. Felt revitalized. And um, 80% of Americans are trying to catch up with naps. A third of Americans are not getting enough sleep at night. When work schedules, parenting, and life get in the way, naps done right can be highly effective at filling the gaps. And it's a funny thing because a lot of times when I nap, and including at work or at home or whenever, when I nap, and I've tried to get away from this, but really my whole life, when I've taken a nap, I have felt a little guilty. There is a part of the culture, even though the health experts all say we need more sleep and we know that sleep leads to better health outcomes, better moods, less depression, less anxiety, less uh, need for uh, stimulants, less need for alcohol. Uh, Really, the, the science is overwhelmingly in favor of taking a nap. And yet, there's something cultural that leads us to think that napping is something that lazy people do. And uh, I remember when I was in high school, I would come home every day from school and I would go up to I – would, I would go to my dad's usually after, uh, after school and I would go up to my bedroom and pretend I was doing my homework and I would nap. Would not tell anyone I was napping, but I would nap and never do my homework. And I always got in trouble because that was always my Achilles heel in school. I never did homework. Throughout my entire scholastic career, kindergarten through graduate school, never did homework. And it really has always caused me a lot of problems. And part of that is because I would spend all the time that I was supposed to be doing homework in high school napping. And um, you think about it, there's something... Celebrated about people who work hard. There's something uh, to be commended and lauded for people that are up early. So they can work out and then go to work and put in a hard day at work and then be a super parent, a super mom, go home and parent their kids and then um, cook dinner and then do something social. And they only get four or five hours of sleep a day. Those are the people that are celebrated. Uh, folks like uh, Bill Clinton, Rudy Giuliani, many others. No, they, Donald Trump. They don't get a lot of sleep and they work, and they work, and they work. And society rewards that and encourages that. You don't see, at least you haven't seen, that same sort of recognition for people that nap. You know, Bill de Blasio would be accused when he was mayor of New York City of napping on the job. And what did he do? Did he come out to the public and say, yes, a lot of times I close my office door and take a nap, Because that's what people are supposed to do. That's what will produce a healthier society. That's what will produce a mentally better off society, a less depressed society, a less anxious society. No, he denied it. He denied it, even though there's an incredible amount of evidence to say that he was napping. And by denying it, Bill de Blasio fed into this cultural bias against napping. My friend Curtis Lewa. His favorite mantra is, I'll have plenty of time to sleep when I'm dead. And yet, you know what I see when I walk by um, Monday morning at 1 a.m., 2 a.m., 3 a.m.? And I'm not disparaging Curtis at all. But um, what I see in the neighboring studio is Curtis asleep. He's napping. (laughs) So um, rather than admit the importance of naps... Curtis is another one, like Bill de Blasio, probably the only thing they have in common, which they shun napping. And I would love to know how we can get away from this as a culture. I was sincere um, at the top of the show when I said every afternoon I face a big question, which is, am I going to nap or am I going to work? And I'd say... Two, or three, two out of three times, work always wins. Sometimes napping wins because I'm intellectually honest enough with myself that if I'm tired and I sound like a blithering idiot on the radio, I can be the most prepared talk show host in the world. But if I, can't, uh, if I have no idea what's going on and I'm as dim-witted as can be because I can't function and I have a tough time driving to work and driving back because I'm um, under, underslept, then you have to take a nap. Sometimes, you know, I'll try and spend time with my wife. We'll be sitting on the couch. We'll be uh, watching a television program. We'll be talking, and she'll see that I'm tired, and she'll say, go nap, go nap. And there's always a little guilt about napping. And I'd love to hear your take on, one, napping strategies that you find effective, and, two, how we can change the culture so that napping is not considered something lazy people do. eight hundred eight four eight nine two two two. 848 The bottom line is napping is considered something smart people do. One of the um, greatest things that uh, John and Margot Katsumatidis, along with uh, Chad Lopez and Emily Pankow, did at our radio station was they put in a couch in the green room. It's an incredibly comfortable couch for napping. And it, it is essential that when you have a 24-hour operation, like a radio station, that there be napping. However, I would say that every workplace in America should have these nap rooms because people are not getting enough sleep and it's not leading to people being more productive. It's leading to people being less productive. 800-848-9222. The research shows that insufficient sleep leads to obesity, depression, anxiety, even heart failure and dementia. Lack of sleep also chips away at our alertness, our memory, and our ability to reason. Naps, to be clear, are not a replacement for a good night's sleep. But the right kind of nap can alleviate the shorter-term effects of sleep deprivation – Study after study study has shown that. One study found that napping, listen to what I'm about to tell you. Turn up the radio, even if you're trying to fall asleep. You can nap in two hours. One study found that napping increased endurance and physical performance. Another study linked naps to stress relief. I have to tell you, I am not at all surprised by this. I think over the course of the last 20 years about the times in my life where I was the most stressed, where I was the most anxious, every single one of them had to do with when I was napping. Well, excuse me, when I was not sleeping enough and not napping. And I I remember I used to cover trials in federal court, and if you fell asleep, as I occasionally did, as if you fell asleep in the gallery of the courthouse, they would come over and they'd wake you up. they just, can't sleep here, can't sleep there. I would go to political functions from time to time, and there would be people that would fall asleep, not when I was talking, of course, but when other people were talking. And you know what everyone else would do? And I'm sure I'm guilty of this myself from time to time you would look at the person that's asleep and you'd make fun of them. You'd laugh. Huh, look at that guy. Look at Tom. He's falling asleep. Oh, he's such a loser. Why do we demonize people that need to nap? We all need to nap. Um, A Johns Hopkins study compared nappers to non-nappers. Listen to this. Those who napped we're better at recalling things and drawing figures, both signs of strong cognitive function. Axios had some nap tips. And if you have any, 800-848-9222, Because sometimes that's my struggle. Even when I have when I, I get here early and I have a good I have twenty minutes to go and take a nap, I wonder how can I fall asleep quickly? The ideal nap lasts between twenty and thirty minutes. That's according to the Sleep Foundation. That allows the body to get the benefits of resting without entering into deep sleep, leaving you groggy when you wake up. Key is set an alarm. When, uh, when you nap is also important. They say, not if you have hours like us, but if you have conventional hours, 9 to 5 hours, take naps in the early afternoon. That's according to the Mayo Clinic. A nap after 3 p.m. might interfere with your ability to fall asleep at night. Where? A nap is only as good as its environment. Find a quiet, comfortable place to doze off. At work, that could be a break room. Use earplugs and an eye mask to block out distractions if that's a factor. Uh, I really do think companies should work to make napping a more normal practice and provide places where workers can take some much-needed rest. They say that you should think of naps like workouts. They're another tool in your kit to facilitate a healthy and happy life. My friend, uh, Arthur Idala, he's a very prominent attorney in New York. He has a room called the Sinatra Room. It's been written about in the uh, New York Post, the New York Times. And I nap there almost once a week. I have to tell you, I get the best sleep of my life in this room. There it it. There's um, two massage chairs. There's a recliner. There's a super comfortable couch. There's a um, there's a fan. There's a, a giant television set with all sorts of streaming channels. There's a fully stocked bar. There, there it's and you close the door, and it's black. It's pitch black. And if you can learn to tune out the the very loud hallway conversations that Arthur Idala may have, or if you're smart enough to go there when Arthur's not there, you can sleep peacefully. And that is, I say to this day, the most restful place that I sleep on a regular basis. There's no cats trying to climb on top of you. There are no baby monitors um, bringing a 10-month-old, a crying 10-month-old to your attention. There's uh, no phone ringing if you are smart enough to turn your phone off, it's just wonderful. And I wish every business had a Sinatra room. They call it the Sinatra room because there's some photos of Frank Sinatra in there. 800 9222 Janet is in Manhattan. Hello. Hi. Hi, Frankie. You're talking about something that's a little bit of a pet peeve
10: of mine. First of all, I think that I think the change will come when there are more and more studies like the one you're talking about, about how much better people function when they sleep enough. And I think it's coming out more and more from doctors and scientists and publicizing it like you're doing is very important. But the reason we have this thing about not sleeping and working all the time, it goes back to Calvinism. You remember Calvinism, I think in the 17th century, it kind of came after Puritanism. Right, I mean, I don't
3: remember the 17th century firsthand, but as a student of I history, that, I do, but yeah. I did
10: read about it. And you know, well, why do we have the term the Protestant work ethic? And we say someone is a good person because they really have that Protestant work ethic. Well, that's where it came from. The theory of Calvinism was you were supposed to work as much as possible, and pile up riches to the glory of God. That showed how much you love God. Anytime you spent, quote, goofing off and not working, i.e. sleeping, was a waste of time. You're supposed to sleep a minimum amount and work the rest of the time. And that has, I think, stayed with us, like I say, the term the Protestant work ethic. And I remember when I was growing up in the 50s and 60s, the word that generally followed the word decent to describe someone was decent, God-fearing person. But that sort of got replaced by the 70s. We, what word replaces it now, do you think? Decent what person? He uh, a decent...
3: Uh, well-rested? Hard-working. Working, right. <laughs> should hard-working, right. It well-rested.
10: And, and the purpose of rest and sleep is so important. First of all, if you're lucky enough to dream and remember your dreams... Uh, You become conscious. You know, dreams are a message your unconscious sends to you, and if you can interpret it, it gives you knowledge about yourself. And there's all sorts of benefits to napping and sleeping. And I think people will come around to it. The 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 pet peeve I have, you know how often when someone takes a day off – or is on vacation. On the radio, you'll hear this a lot. They never just say, so and so has a day off today, or so and so is off today. They'll always say, he has a well deserved day off, or he's taking a well deserved vacation, as if you must say that the vacation was deserved and the rest and the day off was deserved, because otherwise
3: they're goofing off and they ought to be back working. To be working all <laughs> Janet, time. Uh, great call. Thank you very much. 800 I, look, I've got a lot going on. I mean, I'm not um I, I'm not sitting here bragging, "Oh, look how busy I am. Uh, look at all the things that I have to go to." I'm blessed that um I have so much going on in in life that uh, that I can be busy all the time and that I do get invited to so many things. One person emailed me the other day. She said uh because I skipped out on this charity event that I was supposed to go to on Monday night, which I hate to do. I hate to skip out on anything that I'm committed to, but she said I'm glad that you skipped out on that. When I hear about your schedule, it gives me anxiety. Someone else that has a similar that could empathize with what I'm going through and what I've gone through for years is Trisha Hersey. Between studying theology in a competitive seminary program at Emory University, working on campus, doing an internship, and raising a young son she couldn't catch a moment's rest. She sold her car to a Ford graduate school. She would commute on three buses and a train. It was a giant time suck, her commute. Any free minutes that she had during the day were devoted to studying. But in her exhaustion, she often had to reread passages to fully absorb their meaning. I can't tell you how much this speaks to me. When I read that, I said... This article is describing me. That happens to me when I'm preparing for an interview or trying to read an article and I'm sleep deprived uh, or a book. I have to go back and read it again and again. And her grades, Trisha Hersey, suffered. Her health flagged. And something had to give. So she was reading on the sofa at her home and she would frequently find the book falling to her chest as she allowed herself a few minutes to rest, and she would wake up feeling renewed. And so began to build moments of these naps into her days, no matter how busy she was, napping wherever and whenever she could, in bed, on the sofa, on benches, in between classes. She'd had enough of the grind, so she slept. Or emptied her head with something that felt like rest, a long bath. Meditating on the train. Deliberate daydreaming. And this was pivotal in her life. She felt better. Her mind cleared. Her grades improved. And even if the rest came at the expense of time that she'd typically devote to study or work, she was determined to commit to it. And in the process to push back on what she, as a black woman saw as a legacy of forced labor and exhaustion that her ancestors had endured. And now, that was about 10 years ago that she had this epiphany. And in the intervening years, she has turned her personal transformation into a movement. She's 48 years old, and she began inviting people to nap collectively while she offered soothing sermons about the sheer power of sleep, and dreaming. She shared the notion that rest is resistance with a growing and enthusiastic group of followers, both in person and online, who were also weary of the grind. And this has become a big movement. The nap Ministry was born. She has anointed herself the nap Bishop. Here's a little bit of... Um, what you can hear from Trisha Hershey, the NAP Bishop, on her YouTube channel.
15: Capitalism wants to pay us the least and work us the most. It would love for us to work 24 hours a day, seven days a week, never stopping, and they'll replace our bodies with someone else once we're done. And so, this idea of automation, this idea of not listening, of being urgent, of disconnecting with your bodies so that you can become a machine. So that you can be automated and disrupted in a way that doesn't look at your body as a whole divine place of liberation that's worthy of care. Rest is a human right. It is a divine right. It is not a privilege. It is not a luxury. So I hope she's
3: able to change the culture and get more people taking naps. I saw a meme the other day on Twitter. And I'm not much of a meme guy, but this I found really interesting. It was the receptionist from the office, Pam. And I don't think that she ever said this on the show, but it was ascribed to her. The quote was ascribed to her in the meme, even though I don't think she ever said it. But she said uh, in the meme, all I ever do is work and sleep. And yet I have no money. I never have any money and I'm always tired. And uh, I'm very blessed w- with the job that I have because this is what I would do for fun if I could. If they fired me tomorrow, and there was another radio station that said, "All right, you can still do this, but you have to work for free," I would do it. Um, but there's a lot of people that don't feel that way about their work, and I think that meme—and I saw by the amount of people that were retweeting it and commenting on it—I saw. I think that meme really speaks to a lot of people that we're in this rat race where all we do is try to, you know, work and try and struggle to get some rest. Eight hundred eight four eight nine two two two. So I am pro-nap, pro-nap, pro-nap. Bunch of people patiently holding, and then we'll move on to some other issues. Original Rick is in New Jersey. Hello, Original Rick.
16: Yes, good morning, Frank. On um, the napping uh, situation, first of all, I don't agree the qualifier that you gave that a nap is only 20 minutes. I believe in that. Well, no, that's not a
3: qualifier. That's what science suggests.
16: Oh, okay. Because I I believe in that. It's anything that supplements your normal sleep. Mm -hmm. Okay. I sleep three times a day, three hours at a time. That's how I do it. Those are my naps. I I consider them long naps. I I sleep three hours. I go to bed at midnight. I get up at three. Then I go to bed at seven. I get up at ten. Then I go to bed at four. I get up at seven that's how i I have to feed some sick animals but it does me well because after three hours if you wake yourself up with a cup of coffee or something you feel refreshed you don't feel like you lost anything and it seems to well i do know physically from studying medical stuff after 90 minutes of sleep you release growth hormone so this way Three times a day, I'm releasing growth hormone rather than once a day. So it's been benefiting me. I've been seeing health benefits from doing this. So that, that's my way of doing it: three-hour naps, three times a day.
3: Thank you, original Rick. Let me say hello to Tommy two times in Brooklyn. In Brooklyn.
16: Good morning, Frank. Morning. Good
3: morning. Good morning.
17: Uh, you know, napping was part of my life when I was growing up in my twenties because I worked uh, three jobs and. Uh, I worked in a bar. I worked as a machinist during the day and, and a bartender manager at night and a handyman work on my own days off. And after that, I, you know, in my 30s, I became a union iron worker. in over 40. And I tell you, every lunchtime, I would just go to sleep on the ropes, on the fire blankets, whatever was there. And my boss loved it. He said, what the hell's going on here? So I'd, sleep and I'd go right back up on the iron. And I, and I, and these guys would take time to get up on the iron. They'd be up there right away. But napping was fantastic. If they got back from Iraq, I wasn't able to take naps anymore because uh, of oh, whatever. <laughs> anyway, well, but when you say was whatever, great.
3: was it uh, PTSD related issues? Yeah,
17: yeah, yeah. Some well, other stuff too. I, I didn't realize until after I got back from Iraq that the PTSD brings up other stuff. And yeah, I have complex PTSD. They call it when you have multiple. Traumas. No big deal. Getting through it anyway, but napping is just like it's hard to do now because I have um, what they call intrusive thoughts in my dreams and. And I'll dream of it right away. So I don't do that anymore. But and maybe you try it again.
3: Well, yeah, I think you should. And even, Tommy, maybe you think about something like meditation, which uh, might give you some of the restorative benefits of napping even when you can't fall asleep. I know uh, there's a lot of stuff online, even if you don't want to pay to see, like, a meditation specialist. You could find some great mm-hmm. meditation tips online.
17: I uh, actually should have said that since iraq i've been meditating oh. I, I went to a couple of places and that's what i do i do yoga therapy and and uh, meditation and i can actually do transcendental meditation pretty good but i can literally sit still for uh 30 minutes with my eyes closed sitting on a beach or something like that and it doesn't bother me thanks it's, it's taken me a long time to get there but Have a great morning. Thank you, Tommy.
3: Appreciate it. 800-848-9222. We will get into the mail in just a minute. This is uh, the other side of midnight. You want to write to me, you can do so at uh, frank.morano at wabcradio.com. You can also send us some snail mail. Uh, We have to make a trip to the P.O. box, so I think we're a little behind on our snail mail. But if you want to send me some snail mail, that's just plain old regular mail. The, that is P.O. Box 1777. Just send it to uh, Attention Frank Morano or Attention Other Side of Midnight, New York, New York, 10163. It's P.O. Box 1777, New York, New York, 10163. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead.
1: The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Marano.
10: Mr. Sandman
6: Bring me a dream Make him the cutest that I've ever seen Give him two lips
3: like roses and clover bum, bum, bum,
13: bum.
3: Then tell
13: him that his nights are over Sandman The Cordettes so bum, Mr. Bum, 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 Sandman to call Still so catchy
16: bum,
3: bum, bum, bum. Turn on your magic I, I will sing some version of this to Carmine from time to time Bring me a dream. You know, it goes bum, 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 bum. You know, I don't do the bum 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 I let the Cordettes do it And then he's just waking up, you know. Mr. Carmine, bring me a bottle. Make it so full that it will make me full. You know, some versions of that. All right, um, it kind of depends on whatever we're in front of. Sometimes it's Mr. Carmine, give me a water bottle so I can throw it. All right, uh, We will continue with your calls momentarily, but there's a lot of you who have a lot to say in various forms of written correspondence. It is time for... comes to us from Denise, who, if I am remembering correctly, I think has written to me many times, any times I've expressed a conservative view or admiration for a right-leaning figure and essentially said uh, many times, I don't think it's just once or twice, uh, every time I think I can listen to you, you prove to me that you're just as ignorant as everybody else on the radio and I'm done with you and you're horrible, some version of that. This was one of the nicest emails that I've ever gotten from Denise. Subject, loved your segment on pens. Hey, Frank. Great segment tonight on your love of pens and pens your listeners like. Maybe put the list on your Facebook page. It's a great idea, actually. I think we will. I can only remember two pens mentioned, Artist Loft's Drawing Pen and Bic Velocity. Pens are addictive. I'm a graphic designer and an illustrator and missed the days when you could actually try out the pens in art supply stores. More segments like this would be great, thanks Denise in New York City. And I guarantee you, if there was any little dip in the streaming numbers for that segment, I guarantee you (laughs) they're going to give me holy hell for uh, doing a segment on pens. Uh, For instance, Ron posting in the Facebook group. On the subject of pens, more stupid crap. Thanks for WFAN. All right, Ron. And uh, Joe SD might be uh, joining him there. Joe SD writes, OMG, enough with the pen talk. The gentleman said pilot gel bold. All right. Okay. Uh, We have another email here from Arthur, also on the subject of pens. Good morrow. Faithful listener, I work the midnight to 8 a.m. shift. Please send me a pen when they come in, Frank. I, too, enjoy a great writing pen. Sounds right up my alley. Thanks in advance, uh, Artie from Yonkers. I I will. I'm going to order some pens, and uh, I don't really want to pay the postage on sending them out to everybody, so maybe we can work something out with our promotions department while they will send some of these pens out. Janice writes, uh, in the aftermath of our $1,000 minute yesterday, subject of her email is... Celsius question made my blood boil. Very clever. Really, who knows much about Celsius? We are on a different system. <laughs> my cookbook says boil 212 degrees. Almost as bad as the VP question out of this country. How obscure was that one? Not fair to call her. Drive safe and sober. Janice. Thank you, Janice. Very nice. All right, uh, we also have an email here from um, Ellen. Ellen is the greatest listener that we have, uh, by far. That's not even close. Um, Hi, Frank. I just finished listening to your interview with Andrew Yang. I tried, but I just couldn't stay awake this morning, Frank, and I was blown away. I am very happy you got him on the radio with you. Kudos to you. I know you've been wanting to have him on as a guest for a long time. This was a flawless, emphasis mine, flawless and comprehensive interview done as only you can in your perfect and inimitable interviewing style. You have such a talent in your ability to extract the best from each guest, asking them the perfect questions and guiding us through the segment just as a good college professor would. You see that? See what you're missing if you're not listening to all four hours of this show? And we listeners reap the rewards of your accomplishments We are all the richer for having listened to these interviews. You are. You are. For the first time in a long time, I felt optimistic and uplifted about our country's future after hearing Yang. And as I already told you, your interview with Diane Sayre was a home run as well. She strikes me as a very thoughtful person, and you're right. She deserves to be included in the U.S. Senate debate. I know some people have sometimes told you that your interviews could be longer But I actually like it this way. We have time to think about and digest the content, which I often do the day after. And then hopefully you can have your guests on again to expand on the first interview. I hope you have both guests on. Again, that's awfully nice, Alan. Thank you. I think our interviews are very long, actually. I think we do some of the longest interviews on radio, to be honest. Uh, You listen to a lot of folks. that have them on for five minutes, six minutes. We do 20 minutes, 30 minutes, uh, an hour with Julia Globus just now. Um... Linda writes on the subject of the stepson question that we explored this week. I personally would question the woman's motive. This is the woman, if you missed this, who wrote in saying that she believes her stepson is not her husband's biological son. And she thinks he's got a right to know. And she thinks his biological father's got a right to know. I personally would question the woman's motive, especially since she was told that her husband was cheating with his ex-wife during their relationship. And she also states that she does not like her husband's ex at all and has a great amount of disdain for her. I believe it would be harmful to her stepson if the boy was told this unsubstantiated information, especially since the youngster has difficult issue, different issues that he's dealing with. Just because someone looks like someone else does not mean they are related in any way. I truly believe, whether she realizes it or not, she's probably looking to get back at both her husband's ex and her husband's. Because this is not factual information but just an assumption, I believe it would be extremely harmful for her stepson. I believe she should re-examine her motives with her and her husband's therapist. Very unfortunate situation. Take care, Linda. All right. You know, a lot of people ended up saying that, uh, that same thing. Uh, let me – this is from the world of Facebook. Uh, on Facebook, this is from Kevin who writes of the John Stossel interview, John Stossel just lost me with his Trump bully comment. Night, Frank. Well, I'm sorry to lose you, Kevin, as a listener, but I really don't understand that. I mean, um, you can agree with what Stossel said. You can disagree with what Stossel said. I have never understood why disagreeing with something that a guest says or that a host says or a caller would cause you to turn off the radio. I just don't get it. If you're looking for a radio show um, that's, that you can have as an echo chamber that is just going to tell you things that you want to hear and that you already agree with, let me save you the trouble. Find another radio show. This is not the radio show for you. Uh, th- if anything, this is a radio show where you're going to be challenged, where you're going to find your assumptions challenged and uh, forced to think about things that you always assumed were true. And that's what I try to do to myself. Carmela Palaton, uh, well, I don't want to give her last name, but uh, maiden name was Palaton. Carmela writes on the Facebook, I so enjoyed listening to you the other night when you were discussing Sunday morning on Channel 2. I always enjoyed this show for years, however it has changed. I was thinking the same thing as you were. As you were talking about what Ted Koppel was saying, if you listen to radio, it's marching orders. I love Capital listening to the radio, especially your station. On TV, people read what the station writes, and as Madonna says, we got to express yourself. That's what we do in the USA. Everybody has a different opinion. And uh, Sharon writes, I listen on and off throughout the night, since I often don't sleep straight through the night. I heard your comment about the CBS Sunday morning show in reference to talk radio. I appreciate your viewpoint, But I think that the segment was pretty much on target. Hopefully they will look at other forms of media and their impact on the public, including daytime talk shows, nighttime talk shows, and other social media formats. I think that your show is diverse, and perhaps that's why you take exception to the comments. Most of the talk shows on radio are right of center. There are more shows on your station that are to the right than those that represent both sides of the issues. There are other stations on the AM dial that are also more conservative than not. NPR is left of center. However, that's the only station that I know of that's liberal-leaning on the AM dial. I think that I enjoy listening to your show because you offer both sides of an issue. We need more of that. Thanks for your varied and interesting format and selection of topics. Well, Sharon, I appreciate you listening and the, um, the fact that you took the time to write. And the compliment, certainly, about the show. I um, my, my beef was that they made it out. I'm not saying talk radio is not conservative. Of course it is. My beef is not that they describe talk radio as conservative. It's that that was the only thing in terms of media that they focused as a divisive force in society. And I did not like Ted Koppel's characterization at all that those of us that listen to talk radio are just receiving marching orders. And I also think it just leaves out wide swaths of the talk radio marketplace. Uh, Howard Stern, for instance, wasn't mentioned. He's got a huge audience, even once he moved to satellite. A bunch of other other things as well. Ellen, a different Ellen, not the Ellen that is the greatest listener that we have, who I may fake my own death just to have her write my eulogy. A Another Ellen writes the following. Your friend, Curtis. Oh, boy. Here it comes. I was listening last night, (laughs) and Curtis tore into every other radio host on WABC. This is unprofessional, hard to listen to, and plain wrong. I changed the station. Enough! Really? Please talk to John C. about it. Surely, Curtis has more to offer your listening audience than kindergarten chatter. Thank you, Ellen. Let me say this. And I, I get so many emails about this each week, and I ignore most of them. Usually I pick one, and Ellen seems like a really nice lady. One, um, Curtis's numbers on the weekend are phenomenal. He is doing great. So whatever he's doing, uh, he he. for those of you listening outside of New York, he's the overnight host on the weekend, obviously very well known as the founder of the Guardian Angels and mayoral Canada. He is killing it. On the weekend. So he should keep doing whatever he's doing for the radio station's sake. And I guarantee you, John or anyone else is not going to be telling him to change it. So he is doing great. Um, Two, I can't tell you how many listeners say that they've discovered our show because they heard Curtis talking about it. So Curtis is giving us basically a two or three hour free commercial. Uh, Three, I find what Curtis is saying absolutely hysterical. I don't mind people making fun of me at all. Especially, um, Curtis. As long as you're entertaining, if, if you're going to be fun, uh, funny, and have fun making fun of me, great. Make fun of me all the live long day. I am not offended in the least. And I, as I've said a hundred times before, uh, Curtis is an incredibly close friend who has been there for me uh, time and time again um, On in terms of professionally, personally. He can say whatever he wants about me, and uh, I'll still always be in his debt. So uh, if you're thinking about writing to me uh, the next time you hear Curtis insult me, save yourself the stamp. That's my advice. How do you like uh, that? All right. Uh, this is from Christine. Question about Tulsi. Hi, Frank. Like you, I was absolutely thrilled to hear Tulsi Gabbard's reasons for leaving the Democrats and becoming an independent. I have been a Dem only for years and lately have become pretty fed up, even disgusted with the craziness and authoritarian views of the Democratic Party. I felt myself becoming cynical about most politicians, which is why when I listened to Tulsi Gabbard's podcast, I got really excited. Here was a candidate I could get behind, articulate, courageous to speak up and with great ideas, only to get really let down when I heard she is stumping for Republicans. I don't understand. Is she an independent or not? She said she cares about climate change, change, but the guys she's stumping for don't seem to share her views. I'm wondering what you think. I continue to love your show. You are terrific. I hope you do what you're doing for a long time for selfish reasons. Well, thank you, Christine. So do I. Um, I... Have the same question I, I think that just this week she endorsed Carrie Lake, who is considered sort of the next generation of MAGA political superstars and th- if Tulsi Gabbard comes on this show, which I hope she will that 's a question that i 'm going to ask uh, ask her um but uh, i can't i can't answer it now because i can 't speak to what goes on in somebody else's uh brain all right um One more here. Let me pick a good one here. Uh, This is uh, from Deanna about our uh, Flight 800 interview last week. Frank, do not understand if the Navy saw the plane and aimed at it by mistake, or did the missile just get loose and locked onto the plane? Interesting interview. Thanks, Deanna. I don't think we know the answer to that, Deanna. And uh, I'm working on putting together a whole series ...of these Flight 800 interviews. Because as far as I'm concerned, this is one of the great unsolved mysteries... ...which uh, I don't believe we've gotten a satisfactory answer to. Uh, so we will d- do a whole series of these and get into that in uh, in the future. Oh, uh, let me just read this because it's funny. And I hope he doesn't mind me saying who this is from. But this is... I, got, I received this email during my interview with uh, Diane Sayre who by her own admission is part of the Lyndon LaRouche movement, and a lot of folks, including me to be honest, believe that the LaRouche movement is very cultish. This is from Bernard Goetz. Bernard Goetz, of course, the subway vigilante and so forth. I was locked up with LaRouche for a week. He is a con man, total BSer, claimed to have a solution for fusion power, talked BS, His fusion foundation was a farce, claimed to have a cure for AIDS, too. By the way, Bernie Getz did mention that he thought Diane Sayre, even though you know where he's coming from with LaRouche, he thought Diane Sayre made a lot of good points. So that's interesting. All right. Um, That is all we'll get to on this edition of...
1: other side at midnight. 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 Side of midnight it's the other side at midnight with frank Morano.
3: This is Peaches by Presidents of the United States of America. This is one of my favorite songs of the 1990s, uh, without a doubt. I was thinking about this today because um, my son Carmine, he, you know, we'll, we're feeding him more adult food now, um, and it, meaning not just baby farming. So he'll eat some cottage cheese, he'll have. Um, Today he had some carrots and rice. Um, what else did he have? You know, he'll have uh, all sorts of things. All, oh, uh, mushed up bananas, some avocado. He has a you know varied diet. And usually what he'll do when he tries a new food, especially if it's um, something that's a little warm or a little cold, doesn't have to be hot or super cold, just a li- anything other than room temperature, he'll spit it out. He'll spit out, doesn't matter what it is. Then you try and give him another bite of it, and then he'll eat it, usually. And, you know, he seems to be pretty good about trying all sorts of new foods and enjoying them. He was eating some, uh, what did he, he had some crab rangoon yesterday. He he ate ravioli the other day. And uh, he's got a varied diet. for whatever reason, we have tried again and again to give him peaches. And he spits it out. He spits it out and will not, and, and it's one of those things where he spits out a lot of foods, but then you give him another bite and he, he'll he eat it. He'll enjoy it. He spits out the peaches and will not eat them again. He Every single time we've tried to give him peaches, he spits them out. Uh, does not like it. Keep in mind, this is a child that tried and enjoyed cat food, and he won't eat a peach. Cannot understand it for the life of me. Eight hundred 848 9222 That's one eight hundred eight four eight ninety two twenty-two. Let me say hello to Big Julie in Brooklyn. Hello, Big Julie. Hey,
8: good morning, Frank. How are you? Uh on the napping thing, let me tell you something. I think it should be promoted because that afternoon recharge always helps out, especially after a long day. When I was a you know, we worked working full time before I retired, because I'm still working, believe it or not. I used to work 18 hours a day. First off, if I slept more than four or five hours a night, I didn't feel well. Second of all, when I was on the job, a half an hour nap after we ate our lunch to help digest would be very helpful to mm. a lot of people. And in the, in the in the the labor trade, like I was in the uh, elevator division, we used to only get a half an hour lunch break. What can you do within a half an hour? You eat your food quick, and then you got to get up and go. But at the same time, the half-hour nap to give us to eat an hour lunch instead of a half-an-hour lunch, we should also promote at least five minutes of exercise with the company to get ourselves going so we won't feel so tired. And I think that that would be a great idea completely. And let me tell you one thing that works for me. A cup of coffee actually relaxes me and puts me to sleep, and I found out why. My blood pressure was always about 100 over 70 to 110 over 70. The old timers used to tell me that if your blood pressure is low, when you drink coffee, it would actually make you sleep to bring your blood pressure up to normal. And it actually works for me. Well, my wife could never understand how I can have a cup of coffee before to go to bed and sleep like a baby. Imagine you've heard, did you ever hear such a thing, Frankie? You know, I don't think I
3: have, honestly. Uh, But uh, I think uh, what you've done is the right thing. You got to experiment, try different things, and do what's going to work for you. Uh, So I'm glad, uh, I'm glad you got a system that worked out well for you, and that what you described of a nap after lunch—that used to be big in uh, all over Europe, the siestas, and in places like Italy and Spain. Uh, When I was in Italy, and thanks for the call, Julie. When I was in uh, Italy about uh, three years ago. They did away with it. They uh, There are very few provinces and cities in Italy that still observe it. In Rome, no siesta. Everything stays open. In Venice, Florence, uh, in Sorrento, everything stays open. In Capri, everything's open. Apparently, the only places in Italy that still um, observe those siestas are the kind of the smaller towns that aren't bustling, that aren't really urban. And there was one town that I went to, Prasolatera, that uh, did have still observe the siesta, but that was the exception, not the rule. So even the rest of Europe, which used to be very pro-post-lunch nap, is moving away from that. Until next hour, your influence counts. Make sure you use it. Everybody. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Moreno. We must discuss the fall of Favre. To be specific, I am talking about legendary NFL quarterback Brett Favre, or if you've seen the film There's Something About Mary, Brett Favre. Uh, Brett Fav- Favre has so many records in the world of uh, of football. His work as a quarterback, he was selected to the Pro Bowl many times. He's played in the Super Bowl. He uh, spent most of his career with the Green Bay Packers. One season with the New York Jets. That was sort of the tail end of his career. And a couple of seasons with the Vikings. He... um. Has played in over 300 games. He is, in terms of um, completion percentage, including in terms of uh, touchdown percentage, in terms of uh, passing yards, a statistic after statistic, he is one of the best people to ever play the game of football professionally. I don't think that's a an exaggeration. He was the first NFL quarterback to obtain 70,000 yards, 10,000 passes, 6,000 completions, 500 touchdowns, 200 wins, and victories over all 32 teams. There is not a team in the National Football League that was not defeated by Brett Favre, as Ben Silver would say. And Brett Favre had, between 1992 and 2010, 321 consecutive starts. Do you know what that's like for a football player? To play that long without missing a game as a starter? He is the Cal Ripken of football. That is the most consecutive starts in league history. Um... Now, why are we talking about Brett Favre, a retired football player, when this is not even a sports station? Here's what. Uh I've mentioned this before, mostly on the subject of denunciations, but Brett Favre is one of the people at the heart of a welfare fraud scandal in Mississippi. And the more we learn about it, the worse it looks for almost everybody involved, including Brett Favre. Now, the more information that comes to light about this, the one thing that is certain is that Brett Favre's legacy is forever tarnished because of this. I don't know that it's as bad as a Mark McGuire steroid scandal, Barry Bonds, Roger Clemens, steroid scandal in baseball. But I think it might be. If you're not up on this, here's the deal. Brett Favre is one of 38 people or organizations sued by the state of Mississippi for fraudulently securing over $70 million in welfare funds originally earmarked for the state's poorest residents. Because if you think about who should be getting welfare, it's the poor. Not Brett Favre. The story first surfaced this spring when text messages showed that Favre secured over $8 million, mostly to build a volleyball facility at his alma mater, Southern Mississippi, where his daughter played. Some of that money came as a payment for supposed speaking gigs that Favre no-showed. So think about that. They're using welfare money to build a volleyball facility for Brett Favre's alma mater, where his daughter was going to college, and they're using some of that money to pay Brett Favre. Why are you using welfare money to pay Brett Favre for speaking gigs? Welfare money should go to, call me crazy, welfare recipients. And what makes it even worse is that Brett Favre never even gave the speeches. They paid him, and he did return the money, although not the interest that they were looking for. They paid him for speeches that he didn't give with welfare money. Nice work if you can get it, am I right? Those gigs were apparently just a cover. That's why he never gave those speeches. The money was always intended to go towards the facility. Far... Has not been charged with a crime, but that could change because this is, as of now, the largest public fraud case in Mississippi history, and it is continuing to unfold. Since a corrupt official, a corrupt state official, pled guilty to his role in the scheme a week or so ago, more SMS text messages have been released showing the extent of Brett Favre's involvement. To cut costs on the volleyball project, Favre suggested, quote, using the prison industry as builders. He also tried to secure money for an indoor football facility in an effort to recruit Deion Sanders' son. Boy, it's quite a little uh, racket that they have going on there in Mississippi. ESPN and SiriusXM, which both were using Brett Favre as football commentators, which is ostensibly something he should know something about, both of them suspended Brett Favre's weekly radio show in response to this news. Now, Favre's past, even before this, wasn't exactly pristine. Uh, Most notably, there were some sexual harassment allegations against him from a decade ago. And that's pre-Me Too. So you know if there's a sexual harassment allegation prior to Me Too, you know that's a big deal. But in the public's eye, he remained one of the greatest athletes of all time, revered for his toughness. But now what it looks like to anybody that's following the story is that he's just another elitist, spoiled, rich guy who stole money from the poorest people in his state. And there is no escaping that. John Stewart said on his podcast, and I think he put it well, he said, this is diabolical in almost a cartoon villain sense. Why are we talking about this? Well, the Hall of Fame, the National Football League Hall of Fame in Canton, Ohio. The Hall of Fame has already received calls from angry fans asking for him to be removed. So far, his spot in Canton appears safe. Uh, I don't know that the Hall of Fame, the Football Hall of Fame anyway, has a provision for a player's removal. So in the court of law... Brett Favre may never suffer any punishment. But in the court of public opinion, it's hard to imagine he ever recovers from this. So my question for you is twofold. One, do you think he can make a comeback from this? Do you think his reputation can recover from this? 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. And two, whether you're a football fan or not, do you think Brett Favre, one of the greatest quarterbacks of all time, undeniably, indisputably, do you think this behavior merits his removal from the Hall of Fame? 800 That is our twofold question.
1: A question. Since before your son burned hot in space and before your race was born, I have awaited
3: a question. Brad Piggott, who was a U.S. attorney, was on the CBS Evening News. He no longer is a U.S. attorney, even though my cut sheet says Brad Piggott, U.S. attorney. Um, But because of my independent knowledge about Brad Piggott and this particular case, I was able to divine that he was a former U.S. attorney and I was not – Ron Burgundy, in spite of the best efforts by Alex Barnard. See, that's what these guys do. They try to uh, trap me into saying something that isn't accurate, and then they have a good laugh about it at their post show podcast, which no one can listen to yet. We'll talk about that a little later. The uh, less interesting side of Midnight without Frank Morano. And Brad Piggott was on the CBS Evening News talking about this welfare. Fraud scandal.
2: Both federal and Mississippi law required 100% of that money to go only to the alleviation of poverty within Mississippi. This is not philanthropy. It's not a, a passive investor. He invited the director of the Mississippi
3: Department of Human Services into his house to receive the sales pitch. What say you? 800 848 9222. Should Brett Har- Brett Favre be removed from the Hall of Fame? And is this something he can ever recover from? 800-848-9222. My answer to the first is no. I do not think he should be removed from the Hall of Fame. I think um, that when it comes to sports, I-, I recognize that character is supposed to be one of the factors that's considered. Uh, that being said, I don't think you can... Take someone with Brett Favre's accomplishments on the gridiron and not include that person in the Hall of Fame, just as I feel Pete Rose should still be should be in the Hall of Fame. As to the question of whether he can ever recover from this. It's so interesting. I don't know that he. Will ever enjoy the same kind of reputation that he did previously. But I also don't think. He is going to be viewed as the same type of international pariah that somebody like O.J. Simpson was. Now, I remember Lawrence Taylor, who I've met a couple of times, who I really enjoyed his company, and I'd love to get him on the radio sometime. Lawrence Taylor, when he got caught using drugs, people were asking some of the same questions. When he got caught trying to sleep with an underage prostitute, uh, people were asking some of the same uh, questions. Right now, at Giant Stadium, if you go there, any Giant game, Lawrence Taylor's jersey is one of the mo. Not one of is the most popular jersey that you will see in that stadium. Thirty years after he stopped playing, so seeing how Lawrence Taylor's reputation has recovered, I do think it's possible for Brett Favre to enjoy a similar similar. Reputational Rehabilitation. What say you? 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. Matt Blaise, you have uh, any insight on this?
11: Yeah, I don't think he should be removed from the Hall of Fame at all. I mean it has nothing to do this is well after he was already in the Hall of Fame. I mean mm-hmm. O. J. is still in the Hall of Fame.
3: Is he? Is he really?
11: Yeah. They never took O. J. Uh-huh. out of the Hall of Fame.
3: Well he got found not guilty though.
11: No, but but then he found guilty for the right, stealing liable. the, the oh, no. oh that's right. The Vegas. He, he case. Went, it's right. the Vegas thing, yeah. He was in jail for that. But so yeah, O. J. and he was uh civil civilly found liable in the uh the murder case. But still once you once you've played your game and you're, you're a great athlete, and you're in the Hall of Fame, you're not getting taken out for anything you do afterwards.
3: Yeah, uh, you're exactly right. Um, there currently is no rule that allows people to be removed from the, um, the Football Hall of Fame. The, there is a movement to change the rule, but um, because of this, they call it an obscure rule, there's no provision for removal. They would have to amend the the rules in order for Brett Favre or O.J. Simpson to be, uh, to be removed from the Hall of Fame. But the question I'm asking the listeners is, should they be? Should they be um, removed? Should they change this rule so that anybody can be removed if they do things that disgrace the game of football? But by rule, as of now, the Hall of Fame does not remove enshrinees after election. That extends to those that have served prison time. Those with controversial backgrounds and anything in between, so they'd have to change the rule. Keep that in mind as you answer eight hundred eight four eight ninety two twenty two. Eric is in Manhattan. Hello, Eric.
5: Oh, hey Frank. I called about the cat food, but um, but no, the you, it's two. It is two different questions, and you have to like, I guess, about him recovering from it. I mean, take it into look at it in perspective. I mean, look at how much people get away with politicians and actors and still have their jobs, and people forget. You know, we have the memory span of uh, guppies, some people. So, you know, it, it's 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 funky, you know. Mm-hmm. I mean, he didn't physically attack anyone, but it's kind of, you know, uh, it was uh, not an unemployment. He said it was welfare funds. You right. Know?
3: You, know, you know, it's interesting that you say that about the short-term memory of the public. Yeah. <laughs> you know who else um, felt that way? Uh, Andrew Cuomo. Andrew Cuomo apparently yeah. repeatedly told his staff... He said, <laughs> look at the example when he was under under siege for the both the nursing homes and the sexual harassment. Right. He, so, he right. told his staff. Look at what happened with the Virginia governor, Ralph Northam. Uh, he, mm-hmm. There was a lot of pressure on him to resign when he was caught wearing blackface and in some other racially insensitive photos right, and saying right. some racially insensitive things. And Cuomo told his staff, look, the guy wrote it out and people forgot about it. He said, maybe they'll forget about it with me. So it's interesting that you uh, said the same thing. What was your well, other comment?
5: Cuomo tried to come back too quick. You right. Know? <laughs> I right. think he didn't. Uh, so. I mean, so what do you think? I mean, it's, you give it time. I guess I don't know. I mean, the whole thing thing. I mean, you can't go back in time and take, you know, unwrite his accomplishments in football. So I mean, I don't know. <laughs> no, that's true.
3: Uh, did you have a, a, cat, a cat food related comment uh, as well?
5: I, as I was telling your screener, um, I worked at a well. Um, I worked at a gourmet delicatessen once, and I, at lunchtime I'm like in the office. Like, Who's eating Friskies? It was my boss? Had cracked open some pate. So maybe he just thought it was pate, you know, <laughs> and peaches, that's a lot of peaches, peach. That, that's a lot, a lot of sugar. So, you know, he might grow up to be a nutritionist or something. Hopefully, <laughs>
3: hopefully we should be so lucky. Thanks, Eric. You know, it's funny that you say that um, George Hamilton, who I would love to get on this show. George Hamilton, when he was younger, his brother and mother, they, they didn't have any money. And uh, and he, he at this point didn't have any money. But they, it was funny he had a very interesting situation because his family were still socialites because his father was a famous band leader, I believe, or some sort of musician. I think he was a band leader. And um, they had such um, they, they were known for throwing these great parties. And they they had this really hoity toity group of social friends. And they were expected to throw these parties, even though they didn't have a lot of money. So what George Hamilton's brother and his mother did at one particular party, this is what George Hamilton claimed in his book. Maybe it's not true. Maybe he made it up for comedic effect. I don't know. He claimed that they ran out of food at this party because they didn't buy a lot of food to begin with. You know what they had plenty of? Booze. And they got everybody at this party nice and soused. And they were still hungry. So what they did was they took some Ritz crackers – And they put dog food, not cat food, but dog food on the Ritz crackers and served it to the people at the party. And they said it was pate. And according to George Hamilton, at least in his book, and again, I'm not, you know, if this were court, uh, they would say, I'm offering this not for the truth of its content, but for the fact that it was said. According to George Hamilton, nobody complained. Everybody ate it. They enjoyed it as pate. So maybe Eric's on to something here. 800 Al is in Fort Lauderdale. Hello, Al. Hey, uh, Frank. Frank. I just
14: um, uh, remember, it, Brett, uh, when he was uh, playing quarterback against the Miami Hurricanes. This was back in the days of The Rock playing on the Hurricanes team. And... He threw Brett threw a Hail Mary and screwed up the hurricanes uh season as far as wins. And uh that was uh pretty disappointing, but no, I don't think he should be eliminated from the Hall of Fame.
3: Well, that seems to be the consensus, Al. I'm with you, and uh, more importantly, Matt Blaze is with you. Thank you. 800-848-9222. If you want to comment, that's 800-848-9222. I also wanted to do a quick update on this Dunkin' Donuts scandal that I brought to your attention. Uh, By the way, speaking of donuts, we want to uh, publicly admonish and reproach uh, Deb Valentine. She brought in donuts today which look quite good from a bakery in nutley new jersey i have so far not tried one of these donuts i'm going to try and make it out of here without having one of these donuts but i am a little hungry and they do look quite good i'm gonna honestly give it the the full strength of will that i can to not have these donuts did you try one matt place
11: I did. Very good. What did you good. try? What did you try? It was good. I had just a normal chocolate donut.
3: Normal chocolate.
11: Chocolate frosting. I and,
3: and Kenneth, we know of your issues with dairy, but what did you? Uh, what did you try? Yeah, one of them had cinnamon. It was very good. Wow. Okay. Cinnamon. All right. Well, anyway, uh, Dunkin' Donuts. I have done a little more research into why the fans are so upset, and they are really upset. They are saying that this is the new equivalent of the Boston Tea Party. 249 years after the Boston Tea Party, there's a coffee-inspired remake. Dunkin' fans are in full-scale revolt over the company's revamp of their award system last week, which makes getting free coffee more expensive. So these once-loyal customers have been decrying the policy change— on the uh, Duncan's uh, subreddit, pledging to uninstall the app and, ready for this? This is big. Defect to Starbucks. Th- the uh, Thomas Paine of the group wrote, quote, I no longer run on Duncan. So what did Duncan do to set off this revolution? For one it upped the amount that you had to spend at the store to get free drinks. Previously, $40 equaled free coffee. Now, $40 just gets you tea. And you have to spend $50 for coffee, $70 for cold brew, and 1990, excuse me, $90 for some lattes. Dunkin also stripped away the inalienable rights of Americans to cop freebies on their birthday by eliminating free birthday drinks. Used to be you'd get a free drink for your birthday. That's gone. Duncan defended the update, claiming that drinks have gotten more expensive to make and the changes would be beneficial for its franchisees. Duncan also had one of the more generous rewards programs in the industry, so the tweaks bring it more in line with Rivals like Starbucks, but people are not happy. On New Center, Maine, uh, this Dunkin' customer spoke about the change. I think it infuriates people because we're not stupid. Consumers are not stupid. We're we're paying attention. Money, of course, matters, and that's what's really frustrating. Is everything now is exponentially expensive everywhere you go. And lastly, uh, I want before we do the thousand dollar minute, you can call in and comment on any of this if you want. Eight hundred eight four eight. Ninety-two twenty-two. that's 800 I want to give a shout-out to two people. One is the First Lady of the United States, Jill Biden, and two is the, um, the, the head, I think he's the CEO of Newsmax, Chris Ruddy. Um, First Lady Jill Biden is raising awareness about breast cancer wherever she can. And this is what people should do when you're trying to bring attention to an issue. And I don't and this is a obviously this is an issue everybody can get behind. It's a charitable issue. It's a nonprofit issue. But I would even extend this to anything. Right. I mean, anything you want to raise awareness of, I think you should go anywhere that will give you an audience. And unfortunately, what we've seen, not just with politics, but it's particularly noteworthy in politics, what we've seen is people stay in their little corner of the world. If they're liberal, they stay on the liberal networks. If they're conservative, they stay on the conservative networks. And they never venture outside their little bubble. Well, Jill Biden is so determined to raise awareness about breast cancer, she's doing it wherever she can, including on Newsmax. The first lady sat down with the right wing cable channel for an interview that uh, aired on Monday. The interview with Nancy Brinker, who is a breast cancer survivor and has worked to raise awareness about the disease, also touched on uh, Russia's war on Ukraine. Uh, This is a little bit of what uh, Jill Biden said to Nancy Brinker on Newsmax. What got you interested initially in the cause of defeating breast cancer?
18: Well, you know, back in uh, 1993, uh, four of my friends got breast cancer at the exact same time. Wow. And I thought, oh my gosh, what can I do, you know? And one of those friends died, the other three survived. And I thought, well, I'm not a medical doctor, but I am a teacher, I'm an educator. And so I developed a a program called the Biden Breast Health Initiative. And we went into every school in the state of Delaware and we talked to young girls about the importance of good health, good breast health. We took breast models so that they could feel Mm -hmm. what a lump could feel like. We talked to them about, um, you know, not smoking, living healthy lifestyles. And so we, Ask them to then go home and talk to their moms and their grandmoms just to create awareness. Because, Nancy, as you know, as you well know, really, prevention, early detection Mm -hmm. is Mm -hmm. the key. Because if you catch it early, you have so much better chance of surviving breast cancer.
3: So I give her a lot of credit for that. You know, um, she is determined, according to the statement she pointed out, she uh, put out, To raise awareness about this early detection to all audiences from Sunday night football to Newsmax. Uh, I think that's great. And the Newsmax boss, Chris Ruddy, said in a statement, there are there are things Americans disagree with. But fighting cancer is one thing that unites Americans. And we're honored to have Dr. Biden talk of her efforts and President Biden's to combat this deadly condition. I say good for both of them Uh, to me. Politics and political differences should stop when it comes to a serious public health issue like breast cancer or prostate cancer or anything along those lines. You know, I often think I really never got to know my maternal grandmother. Uh, my uh, she I was alive, but she died when I was a baby. I think I was about two. I don't remember meeting her. But um, she's got a great reputation in our family. The way that uh, my mom and my my uncle talk about her and the way that my grandfather used to talk about her, it's like they describe an angel. And I never really got to know her because she died at 49 years old from breast cancer. And and what a shame that is. And had there been greater awareness of things like early detection and things of that nature, maybe I would have gotten to know her. And uh, I really hope that... um, That Jill Biden keeps doing what she's doing. I think this is a great platform for the First Lady to have. And I give her credit for going sort of into the lion's den. And uh, I think uh, I give uh, Newsmax credit for welcoming a Democratic First Lady as well. All right. uh, We're going to try and give away $1,000 in just a minute. If you would like to try and win $1,000 by answering 10 trivia questions in 60 seconds. Uh, that is uh, a number you can reach us at is 1-800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. Uh, seventh caller, you'll get to play the $1,000 Minute straight ahead.
1: The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. Traveled, has come to
2: an end
1: When to love the same love One love
2: has to lose
1: And it's you who she longs for It's you she will choose Adios, compadre What must be, must be. Remember to name one muchacho
3: for me. I ride. Jim Reeves singing Adios Amigos, which we will bid to you in about 23 minutes. I don't know why this song got stuck in my head yesterday, but for some reason, you know, I'm a fan of the book. The uh, Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, a great book. And I'm a fan of every other version of that. The radio show, the American motion picture, the classic BBC series. Why am I talking about this? Because in the BBC series, I think it was a six-episode series. It's really well done. I enjoyed it. David Dixon plays Ford Prefect. And you know David Dixon if you follow uh, British comedy at all. He is, um, I think he did stuff on, um, he's been in a bunch of things. Legend of Robin Hood, he was in, he's been in a bunch of things. And there was a commercial that, I don't know what it was a commercial for. Maybe it was a beer commercial. And this song plays in the beer commercial in the 1990s. So um, if anybody remembers that commercial or has it, uh, please email me. Or something, because it was David Dixon, I think it was David Dixon, Dixon, but there was definitely a beer commercial, or certainly a commercial from the mid-1990s, I want to say it was 96 or 97, that has that song in it. If anybody remembers, please call me. I, for some reason, it was just bothering me that I couldn't remember that today. 800-848-9222. All right. Um, we are going to do our best to try and give away some money. It has been a long time. Since we had a winner for.
1: The Other Side of Midnight presents. It's the $1,000 Minute. Answer 10 questions correctly in one minute, and you could win $1,000. Here's your host, Frank Murano.
3: All right. Uh, let us meet. Uh, let's see who um, our telephone talent coordinator, Kenneth, has selected. Oh, surprisingly, he has selected Kenneth from Bayside. Kenneth, good morning. Good morning, Frank. How are you? I'm well. Uh, are you any relation to our Kenneth? I don't think so, no. All right, all right. We don't want any nepotism here, Kenneth. Nope. Nope. All right, um, Kenneth, are you familiar with this uh, with this segment, how it works? Yes, I do. Great, all right. We'll get started if you're ready. And uh, just uh, don't uh, don't overthink the questions. Don't get nervous. Take a second, give your answer, and uh, you're going to be just fine, okay? Yes. All right. What professional sport did Babe Ruth play? Baseball. What day of the week does Thanksgiving fall on? Thursday. What continent is Asia on?
7: It is in Asia.
3: Um, uh, Okay, actually, I meant to say China, but you're actually right. In Roman numerals, what number is symbolized by the letter X? Five. Ah, I'm sorry. Uh, No flexibility there. See, you rushed. I see what happened. You rushed. It's ten. It's ten. X is ten. V. V is five. Um, Well done, though, Kenneth. Sort of. uh, Thank you. You didn't get tripped up on my Asia mistyping. Hang on. Uh, give give the other Kenneth your information. Uh, yeah, I mistyped. For whatever reason, I meant to type what continent is China on, and for whatever reason I put what continent is Asia on. And sure enough, Kenneth would not be outsmarted on that. It took the Roman numeral X to trip him up there. So that's that. All right, uh, 800-848-9222 if you want to comment on anything we have covered thus far. Today we are celebrating National Kentucky Day. I have never been to Kentucky, but I have drink drank a incredible amount of bourbon including a lot of bourbon from Kentucky. Bourbon does not have to be from Kentucky. But a lot of the good bourbon really is. I One of my go-tos uh, is uh, Maker's Mark. That's from Kentucky usually. And uh, uh, I'm also a big fan of Woodford Reserve, Basil Hayden. Those are all great Kentucky bourbons. So uh, if you're from Kentucky today, today's your day. I also briefly dated a, uh, a girl from Kentucky, and she was delightful, Amber. She was a wonderful girl. And uh, I don't know whatever happened to her. I hope she's doing well, wherever she is. Uh, Today is also National Seafood Bisque Day. I am a seafood bisque fiend. Our old radio station used to be next to a great little soups uh, store. They only had soups and sandwiches. That's all they had. It was called the Soup Spot. They used to offer a crab bisque that is out of this world. I think they still may. It's very good. But Ooh, um yeah. so I'm not sure if those of us that like crab bisque and lobster bisque, if we also get to celebrate National Seafood Bisque Day or if that's a separate holiday. But who's to tell you how you can celebrate? want to wish you a happy birthday as well to... Um, Actor John Lithgow, it's his birthday today, 77 years old. He, of course, uh, very well known for Third Rock from the Sun, but also was in the Twilight Zone movie. Did a lot of other things as well. But um, he played Roger Ailes very recently in, I think it was the loudest voice. I think he was in the made-for-TV version. See, there was, there's always a bunch of things that come out around the same time. You remember... In the late 90s when Deep Impact the, uh, and Armageddon came out right around the same time. Then there was the time that um, you had uh, two Truman Capote movies come out right after one another. Then you had the musical Titanic on Broadway followed by the movie Titanic. It just always seems to work out that way that, um, that, that similar things come out. There was the television show Titus and that and it was immediately followed by the... Film Titus, so uh, John Lithgow celebrating his birthday today. I don't. I was going to say I don't remember if he played Roger Ailes in the TV show, the, the miniseries, or the uh, the film. Um, Tony LoBianco, eighty six years old today. He's been a guest on this show. He's great. He I've seen him as uh, Fiorello LaGuardia many times. He's terrific, and he's great on the radio and a real patriot and uh evander holyfield sixty years old today john favreau fifty six years old today and t v personality john edward he is the the medium person that talks with dead people, not the senator he is um fifty three years old today he would be fun to get on this show. We have a medium coming up tomorrow in our a c segment because she has a upcoming performance in Atlantic City, and it's always fun to talk to a medium once in a while, even sometimes fun to talk to a large. But uh, that's always fascinated me, whether or not people can um, can talk to dead people. I've seen some pretty compelling things in terms of mediums and their ability to talk with folks. But then you have other folks like um, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle and Houdini, That uh, Houdini especially, spent a lot of time trying to debunk Mediums and the occult and that whole thing. And um, Gary Korb from CigarAdvisor.com, who's been a guest on this show, also one of the more uh, on-the-money, on-topic Facebook group posters. I think we may start doing, on a weekly basis, special recognition for whoever is most on-topic in the Facebook group and whoever is least on topic. And Gary Korb is always on the money with a, a really interesting, insightful observation. Jules Nasso, it's his birthday today as well. He was a, a film producer and involved in pharmacies. He's you know, he's one of those guys that everybody knows. Close friend of Rudy Giuliani. And um, happy birthday to everybody that's uh, celebrating today. You know what happened on this day in 1985? The very first Blockbuster video rental store opened in Dallas, Texas. And this was at a time, remember what video stores were like in the 80s, and I used to love going into a video store. At a time when most video stores were small-scale operations featuring a very limited selection of titles, Blockbuster opened with some 8,000 tapes on the shelves. And you know how many Blockbuster video stores are left today? One. There is one left, and there's a great documentary about the last blockbuster video. I recommend it. And uh, we interviewed the filmmaker of that documentary, and it's worth seeing. It's a very good documentary. Also want to recognize um, what happened today in 1987, which was Black Monday. The largest ever one-day percentage decline in the Dow Jones came not in 1929— but on October 19th, 1987, as a number of unrelated events led to a tanking of the global markets, the Dow dropped 22.6%. So um, I'm sure a lot of you remember where you were at that time. 800 Hey, speaking of birthdays, next week, I believe, It's going to be Alex Barnard's birthday on Monday. And um, I feel like because we made a big deal about Kenneth's birthday, we have to now make a big deal about Alex Barnard's birthday.
6: Yes, that is correct.
3: See, this is why I don't tell anybody about my birthday, because I don't want to create a birthday domino effect where, all right, we did something for Frank's birthday. Now we have to do something for Dominic and and then Deb Valentine and then Curtis. It's got to be a big thing. So, um... Rita Cosby was very gung-ho about celebrating Kenneth's birthday, our telephone talent coordinator, if you're new to the program. So now, of course, we have to at least do for Alex whatever the whatever his most favored birthday status, right? So whatever Kenneth got, Alex is now entitled to. And so it, it becomes a lot of work, very, very um, inconsiderate of him to be born on a day where we're doing a show. So hopefully it doesn't disrupt the flow of the show too much. Um, And you know what I've always said, honestly, is that if you're celebrating a birthday, what everyone should have I don't like the fact that Amazon controls everything. You should have seen all the complaints my wife had about Amazon yesterday. She was going on and on about how it used to be so easy to return things. Now it's a big production. She feels like she lives in a packing facility. She orders a a nonstick pan. It's too big. She orders another one. It's too small. She's got to pay $6 to return it. She's got to print out these shipping labels. And uh, she was not at all happy about the Amazon situation. And I said, honey, that's what happens with monopolies. They are great in terms of cost and in terms of user accessibility until they put everyone else out of business. And then all of a sudden they're not so great. And this Carmine was calling around at this time. And I said, Carmine, by the time you are old enough to be a consumer, every store will be Amazon. It's going to be like Demolition Man and Taco Bell. That's where we're headed. Every store will be Amazon. So uh, that being said, I have always said, you know, it's so annoying to try and figure out what people want for their birthday. I have always said that it would be nice if every person, not as a matter of law, but as a matter of social custom and a matter of common courtesy, every person should have a lengthy Amazon wish list where they have on this list every single item that they would want. And then this way, it's basically like a wedding registry or a, or, a, or a baby registry for life. Every time there's an occasion, you just go to Alex's Amazon registry, his wish list, and see, oh, what does Alex want? He wants more uh, death metal equipment. Okay, we'll, we'll buy it. And then this way you don't have him dealing with all sorts of junk that he doesn't want. And you don't have Kenneth, Matt Blaze, Deb Valentine, and me stressing about what to get him. Although in Deb's case, it's easy; she'll have all those donut holes from the donuts that were that were punctured, and now we've got to do something with them. And we know that we know Alex's birthday is coming up. That's that's the solution, I suppose. Eight hundred eight four eight nine two two two. Mike is in New Jersey. Hello, Mike. Good
8: morning. Good morning. Um, I listen to your show almost every morning, and I really enjoy it. I look forward to your the 10 questions where you can win $1,000. But I'm always disappointed that, you know, there are very few winners, and I have a suggestion. Since none of us are perfect, I think you should give people a chance to have one wrong question, and on the second wrong question, they lose. But, yeah. you know, to be perfect in the beginning is, is hard for most people.
3: Well, you know, that is um, not a bad suggestion, and it's actually similar to one that Brian Kilmeade uh, brought up. Uh, So I actually like that idea. I've been trying to make the questions easier and easier. So what is that? Oh, that's uh, Alex Barnard music? So anyway... um, I I am going to uh, put that on the list of things to bring up at our weekly Friday meeting. We have to obviously get that cleared by management, but I uh, I like that that tr- that I makes sense no. to me. You say no why? Absolutely not.
12: I why? second the, that. The
11: questions are not supposed to be easy, but the, the questions are easy. And but
3: then, and yeah, and they still lose. But you know what it is? It, it, it's I like the contest because the questions are easy. But you have to know a little bit about everything. Correct. It's not as if if you're a sports fan or a news addict or um, whatever, a a literature fiend or a mathematician, you can't win just by knowing about your subject. You got to know a little bit about everything, you know? Yeah. Um, And that's the way it should be. And when people complain
11: constantly about the $1,000 minute's too hard, how come nobody's won? It's not supposed to be. That's right. It's not you're not supposed to win every day. I know. I mean we could use a winner. It's been it's well, been a while. Of course we could use a winner, but you can't how could you make the questions yeah. any easier? That's true. You asked a question. What city is the Empire State Building
12: in? What was the answer? It was uh it was Albany. Yeah, exactly.
15: <laughs> I mean come Frank, on. The
12: thing is, if you give someone a gimme, that could be the difference between a t shirt and a hundred dollars. You can't do that.
3: I think it's the gimme's wrong. That's true. You're right. That's true. That's true. Hey, by the way, I want to thank the um, listener, he, Stu uh, Obviously, I don't think that's his real name. Uh, that it is uh, sort of an Italian, um, you know, an Italian slang term for some anatomy. Um, the He sent me. That Miller Lite commercial featuring David Dixon, I have just linked to it on my Facebook page. So that is pretty snazzy. We may have to hire Stu Goths to work on this show because our guys didn't come up with that that quickly. That was really good. And so I've just linked to it if you want to see that Facebook uh, on Facebook.com slash Morano fan. If you want to see that commercial featuring that song, Adios Amigos. Uh, 800-848-9222. You know what we're going to do in just a moment? 15 seconds of fame. You can be heard on any subject for 15 seconds. We don't screen the calls for content. Say whatever you want. 800-848-9222. Straight ahead.
1: The Other Side of midnight. 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 It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano.
3: Out of midnight, I am Frank Moreno. Eight. Tomorrow, we're going to be joined by Steve Cates, a.k.a. Dr. Sky, a whole lot of uh, space news that we're going to get to, some other stuff as well. And Friday, we are scheduled to talk with the great John Gambling. Uh, that's going to be fun. Robert writes in the Facebook group, and you can join the Facebook group um, just by searching Moreno Radio Fans and Haters. All that talk about pens and no mention of Frank's preference of which is best to insert into an ear. Canada loves other side. Well, good question, Robert. Um, There are two things that I enjoy doing. One is I'll take a pen cap and just use the narrow little portion of the pen cap, the stick part of the pen cap, the kind that always seems to break off at unopportune times. I like to stick that in there. Also, this is really my favorite. I like a click pen, the kind of pen that you click and then it writes and you click it and then the, the business end of it retracts or retractable thing, I think I call it, that's narrow at the tip. And I love to unretract it, meaning the ink portion is not in there, and stick that in my ear and really whirl it around in there. Get a good um, brushing of the ear and get a little earwax on there and then hit that pen retraction again And then write a little bit and have a little earwax come out on whatever I'm writing. So mine is a retractable with a narrow, um, not for writing, but for ear sticking in. Time for...
1: The Other Side of Midnight. This is 15 Seconds of Fame. Only a couple here. Joe in orange. How you doing, Frank? Listen,
17: it's not your fault that everybody that listens to you didn't graduate to third grade.
3: And you're a Leo like me. You're August 5th, and I'm the 8th. Steve in Brooklyn. <laughs> this is a moron. Uh, Rick in Tom's River. Good morning. Let's go the Yankees tonight. I want the Yankees, and I want Philadelphia
17: in the World Series. God bless you.
3: All right. That slams the lid on things for today. We'll have more time for this tomorrow. Mike, Fred, E. Frank Cheech, and everybody else. Uh, this is The Other Side of Midnight. I'll see you tomorrow with Dr. Sky. Frank Moreno, good day.